Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to Maloney's Mill Track Style Show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. It's a special night. This is that double feature. But before we start the two shows, I just want to remind everyone that we're having a World War II trivia contest coming up very soon in the show. We're going to be playing for a fan uh, who is going to win the Ultimate Risk European board game. Very expensive, very exclusive game. So listen, this is to get in on the action. Just send an email to uh, macmaloney.com. Uh, go on to our website, macmaloney.com. Fill out the email form there. Get your name in and your email address. Your name will go into the Magic Fishbowl. And we'll be picking out the winners the night of the game. Okay, so it's coming up very soon. And uh, so get your names into macmaloney.com. And maybe you can win the Ultimate Risk Europe board game. Very cool. World War II Trivia Contest. And now, without further ado, let's get on with the double feature. There are a thousand UFO sightings reported around the world every month. 90% of these sightings can be explained, but 10% cannot. Officially and unofficially, the U.S. military has been investigating UFOs since 1947. Their top secret goal is to find out what's behind these unexplained sightings. The Pentagon classifies them as unusual airborne anomalies, but a better term is X-Files. Join us now as Mac Wanwan and Commander Cobra explore these unsolved cases, UFO incidents that baffle even the U.S. military. This is Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. And now, here's Mac Maloney. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Mac Maloney. What a show we have for you tonight. But first, time to introduce the members of the posse. Now, I'm sorry, girls. J.J. isn't here tonight. Not here. He's on his own secret mission. Might call in later. But... Just so you're not that disappointed, I think it's time, uh, ladies, for you to sit down in your lounger, get your uh, get your Bengay ready, because um, they know him as Coco on the streets, but we know him as Commander Cobra. Coco, how you doing? Excellent. It's always a privilege to uh, join the formation and get on the wing. Back yes. always military here. Thank you for having me tonight. Yes. It happened to uh, about a year ago when we uh, did our... Um, Audience analysis, it turned out that women over 38, between 38 and 52, preferred Commander Cobra to Mac and JJ. Remember that study? It's nice to see that demographics move down a little bit because it used to be a little bit more of the senior set that enjoyed <laughs> really? me more. Yeah. Um, oh. So yeah, it's yeah. nice to know that I'm, I'm pleasing more or a larger audience and larger not to be descriptive or depictive to anything okay. else either. That's, just right. That's the secret of show business there. Uh, everything good with you? You're all dressed up. You're dressed up in your fly. You're- I just walked in from the uh, latest secret mission really? business. Um, today, I went in the naval aviator jacket. Wow. Uh, Look at that. Because I was jacket. with a bunch of engineers, and I, I felt like I needed to have a little, little sway. Cachet. Yeah, a little cachet. Good word. Okay, good for you, Coco. Um, okay, up there in a bowl of flakes, our national correspondent, Battle Creek, Michigan. Switchblade Steve Wood, Switchy. It is great to be here okay. tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. 
and how are you? Beyond wonderful. Beyond wonderful is what we want to hear. Um, now, in our effort to class up the show, joining us tonight also, taking time from her busy schedule, the fa- famous Lois Lane. Hello, Lois. Hi, everybody. Hi, Lois. It's great to be here. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. You know us so well. How's things in your little world? How's things? Look radiant tonight, by the way, Lois. I was going to say that. I asked her to turn the the lights down. She did, and she still radiates. So, (laughs) (laughs) everything okay with you? Whoop! She's on the move. Okay, there she goes. Probably getting a bottle. Nope. Yeah. Looks great. Perfect. Does that help? We're a radio show, Lois. Also, we have. A, uh, a very famous author on with us. We can't see him, but we can hear him. We can kind of see him. Very <laughs> famous Hollywood author, Gary Olson, the big O. G.O., how are you doing? Thank you very much for me to be here. Uh, it's really an honor. I just am humbled that I am talking to one of the biggest all-star panels in really? the history of podcasts. Wow. Okay. And who are you talking about? What show are you talking about exactly? Right here, right now. So, Gary, what's the name of your book? Yeah, it's the uh, 15 Geniuses Behind the Lens, How the Top Directors in the History of Film Have Shaped the Movies that We See Today. Mm-hmm. I read it. You know, most friends don't read their friends' books, but I read it. And oh, Coco, I know he's read all my books. But um, it was a really good book, a lot of research. I know you've talked for a long time about writing it, and you didn't. I, it, and I, I went to film school for God's sakes, and I learned lots of stuff just in the, uh, you know, the research you put into it to these fifteen guys. Can you can you recite recite the fifteen guys right off the top of your head right now? Oh boy, I wish I uh, brought my book with me, there but uh, yes, I came from memory. Go ahead, D.W. Griffith. Yes. Uh, Charlie Chaplin. Yes. Frank Capra. Yes. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock. And that's a two-parter on Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Billy Wilder. Mm-hmm. Then I get into some foreign ones Uh-oh. with Igmar Bergman. Yes. Boring. Frederico Fellini. Yes. And uh, it goes on and on and on. So, but the end, the last one, I do Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg. Two terrible directors. <clears throat> Are there any female directors Uh-oh. in your list? Uh-uh, that no. will be my uh, second or third edition because yeah. I'm going to expand it. <laughs> but I am currently working on the 16. Geniuses in front of the lens. Oh, you and found, I'll be talking. Half will be female and half will be male. You found oh. you you found sixteen genius actors. That's impossible. No, it isn't. Not throughout the whole history of movies. Okay. It's very very easy. Okay, I can see you on um, ET. I'd like to also just quickly throw in. Please. you have two of my favorites in there. Uh, Kurosawa, which I mm-hmm. doesn't get a lot of attention. I thought that was pretty cool. And Walt Disney. Walt Disney. Disney did some incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, this yeah, is... and we're going to be discussing one of the most famous directors, Stanley Kubrick, in one of the selections. You oh, wow! Huh? Okay. He's one of those guys that I really liked. Yeah. But the more I find out about him, the less I like him. Well, he's he was an <laughs> odd guy. Yes, he's an odd guy. And the last movie he did, Eyes Wide Shut, is the most baffling, effed up movie in the world for such a big director. But talking about movies, why don't we do this now? Uh, the bit is not the bit. The segment is that we uh, have the top ten. UFO slash alien movies that we believe 
deserve a reboot. How about that? The top 10 UFO movies that we think deserve a reboot. Is that right there, Gio? Do I have that right? Yeah, and it's going to be a little confusing because uh, mm-hmm. there have been several movies on this list that have had sequels. Yes. Okay. So, uh, right. But you're correct. The, right. You probably should concentrate on the original remake. We, we welcome the confusion. Now, reading off the list will be the beautiful Lois Lane. Lois, do you have the list in front of you? I do have the list in front okay, of me. Okay, why don't we go? Top 10. Start right away. Okay, all okay. right. Why don't we start a little music right here? Top 10 UFO movies we think should be rebooted, please. Number 10, Lois Lane. Number 10, Independence Day. Independence Day, one of the worst big budget movies ever made. Switch and I have talked about it on air and off yes. air. It, it's, it's, it's the... It's the poster child for excess in a movie. It was a big success. I'm sure it made its money back. But man, oh man, it has a plot that you cannot figure out. It 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 it, it bases itself on you know lost phone calls, coincidences, people running into each other. Insane. Just a terrible, terrible movie. But spent a lot of money making it and made a lot of money. Do you agree with me? The switch terrible movie. Yes. If you're gonna remake it completely throw out the script you know mm-hmm. the general idea alien invasion can can be uh, very entertaining and done well but trash that script right. and start over see I, I in my notes i said what they should do is they should take one of these movies and I, i'll be interested to see what gary says about this take one of these movies like independence day or a couple other movies we're going to be talking about and 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 like switch this throw out the script but but Film them and and approach them like you approach the longest day, like a real war epic. None of this nonsense that they had going on in Independence Day. Uh, Coco, go ahead. Um, I'd like to volunteer to be the technical advisor because there was a couple flaws in the main character okay. of the movie that just absolutely graded with the vast majority of us. I think the premise, as Twitch uh, has put, is very very good on this movie. But it was so absolutely balled up that it lost everything. Everything. And the whole thing of what goes on in Area 51 and the deniability and the the, the whole secret government aspect going on, yeah. way ahead of its time. Yeah. Lost. It's yeah. a drift and a sea of BS that, that was surrounding I think I think they made up a lot of that script as they went along, you know? Anyway, uh, G.O., the other expert, G.O., what did you think of the movie? Yeah, you think this was bad. I don't know if you saw the sequel, uh, Independence Day Resurgence. They did a sequel? Oh, did my you, God. Did you anybody see that? Wow, really? I, didn't I, I just want to put this movie in historical context, text as far as technology goes. Yes. Uh, 96, 97, remember Jurassic Park? This was really on the cusp of using old technology okay. with a new CGI that yep. was sophisticated enough to really change the looks of, uh, of movies. Yes. This movie, uh, Independence Day, used more models than any other movie in the history of movies. Fashion fact, models? Swimsuit the, models? What the kind of models? Advisor said models. Like, for instance, uh, the... Um, the uh, White House. Oh, you know, okay. that was actually a model which they, they may constructed. Yes, you know the mothership was another one. Yes. So, uh, but at the time when you saw it on on the big screen, mm-hmm. it was it was mind boggling. Yeah, oh, it's, I have it's to beautiful admit, to look at. Yeah, it's finale beautiful. scene with a, with a good soundtrack. In good sound, good everything Even in a way. Time. But just all I say is take that time, money, effort. 
and and put a really good story on it. Do it like a real war movie, you know, like a real they win that you know we win we. You know, it's 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 it's. I think people. The trouble would love with all these. The trouble with all these high tech movies nowadays is that you're right, thin script, and they dazzle you with all no, the techno. Right. You know, lightning and all that stuff. Right. Just like you. Just like you, Gio. I mean, when you know you have a bad sci-fi movie with bad special effects, they make the fight at night, you know? And and that's how they hide all their bad effects. That's what I think Gary's up to. But you'd have to see him on TV. Next next movie, please. Lois Lane. Movies we, UFO movies we think should be rebooted. Okay, so number nine. What about Quartermass? And the Pit. Way to Mass in the Pit. One of my yeah. favorites. Yep. Great movie. Great British movie. Switch knows a lot about this movie. I've seen it once on TV, and it was just like, oh, wow, man. It's a, it's a British science fiction movie. It's a little bit different than the kind of science fiction movies we had in this country, but just a cool movie, right, Switchy? Yes, and uh, the uh, when it first came over here, they called it Five Million Years to Earth, just so people mm-hmm. might might know it by that title. Good name. Uh, the thing is, if you're going to remake this one man you've got to be careful and have somebody that can write a literate script because mm-hmm. they did a phenomenal job even with the you know the, the technology they had to do effects back then yep and uh and we talked about before how far ahead of uh it's ahead of its time it was mm-hmm. with the idea of the uh things like Hobbs Lane and that this presence of this craft or whatever it is in the subway was creating uh actually kind of folklore and, and visions of the devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it just, it just it had many layers to it. Let's right. put it that way. Yeah, just British. It was a very literate script, a very, very right. original idea. Right. It, it Basically, they find a UFO buried in the London subway is, is, you know, the elevator pitch. But what happens to it? And, it, and it's almost like, I don't know, if Sherlock Holmes ever did a UFO movie, it'd be something like this. You know, as Switch says, kind of literate script, nice, dense, good characters. You know, it's not all just kind of uh, routine, cliche. It's really good. Quite a mass in the pit, man. And I think they could do great special effects these days. But you're right. Whoever did it would have to be in love with the first movie. Credit to them for the for the, the effects that they did. They did a great yeah, oh, job. Great. Yeah, so. yep, yep. They're yep. really good. Your skin crawls in that movie. Yeah, your skin cool. crawls in that movie. It's cool. It's cool. There's a lot of subplots. And, and especially around. the climatic scene. Mm-hmm. Who's the guy now? Who's the guy who played the guy? Isn't wasn't he a famous British guy? The guy who played the uh, the lead. Guy? Oh yeah. Um, he's and cool. even his the other Kirk. other gentleman uh, was Andrew Kirk. Okay, right. Yeah, he was like a big and, time and, actor over there. He. You know, just in a side. Barbara film. Shelley. Barbara, Barbara Shelley. Shelley was in it. The, uh, it was it was Hammer. It was Hammer that did it. The Hammer horror films, and they, yeah. they do some pretty. Uh, they have done some pretty good stuff. Not Hammer, the hip hop guy. He was involved. <clears throat> oh, no, Hammer films. Um, very famous uh, serial ex uh, on BBC. Gonna have to play some Hammer music. Okay, uh, Big G- uh, Go. What do you think? You ever see that movie? Quite a mass in the pit. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is where the script, uh, you know, they don't uh, depend on a lot of bells and whistles and high tech. Mm-hmm. I mean, the script is solid. Yep. It's in- intellectual. intellectual. I mean, the, the, the aliens actually were part of the evolution of the uh, human race. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we have that deep yeah, psychic theory. in there. Mm-hmm. And in uh, the late 90s, uh, they did want to uh, do a sequel. Mm-hmm. And his name, I'd never heard of this guy, but director Alex Prowess. Nope. 
Have you ever heard of him? Nope. But he wanted to do a, uh, not a sequel, he wanted to do a remake, but he never got the funding. Got the money, yeah. I mean, they would have to do it in London. If they did it, you know, Flying Saucer found in Grand Central Station in New York, forget about it. It ain't going to work. It's a British story. It's how, it's a British story. It would be a great movie to reboot. Quite a mass in the pit, or what is it, 8 million years to Earth, Gary? Is that the U.S.? 5 million years to Earth. 5 million years to Earth, yeah. yeah. Really good movie. Good movie. Seen on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, Lois Lane, uh, next movie, please. Yeah. Movies, UFO movies we think should be rebooted. Number eight. Number eight is the Coneheads. The Coneheads. What are my notes to that? Can you read our note? Can you read my notes to that, please, Lois? Can I read your notes? Of course I can. The Coneheads. <clears throat> I think this would be interesting commentary on discrimination in this country if they did, redid the movie as a drama. <laughs> I think you're, I think which they touched upon in that what movie. Else, what else did they have? What else did didn't I write? Ha ha or something there, Lois? Please. <clears throat> yes, you did. I didn't know if I was supposed to say that part. Of course, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the reason for the drum roll there. Oh, wow, we okay. You gotta follow the script, JJ. Okay. We need a little levity. Here. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, you provided that, my dear. So uh, the Coneheads, yeah. That's well, they it. do have a levitation drive. The Coneheads did have a levitation drive, so that, that worked. Okay. That was the joke, and you know. Okay. So we'll jump. They don't all work, Uncle Brian. Go ahead. Next, next movie, please. Lois Lane. Oh wait, wait, wait. Hey. Listen, oh, I'm sorry. Let's stay with the Coneheads for a minute. Oh wait, that was a joke. Oh, yeah, because, <laughs> this is a. This is a movie that I don't think you could replicate today because Good. of the guest stars of Saturday Night Live when they were really peaking way back when. Way back when. And uh, I, I just, yeah, late 70s, early 80s. Even though this was made in 93, they brought back a lot of the old uh, people again, as well as Ellen DeGeneres. This wow. This was her oh, wow. film she debut. Was she was available. Drew Carey was also yeah. introduced in this movie. Drew Carey. So, uh, hmm. And the thing is, if you if you ever seen it, the government's after the Coneheads because they know that they're not quite right, and so the aliens of their planet yes. uh, whisk them back to the planet, and then, but uh, Dan Aykroyd wants to go back to Earth. Okay. But they they left it hanging, and there was never any sequel. So yes. too bad. I, I I guess I don't remember the same ending, Harry, because they <laughs> make it back to Earth, they fake the big battle, yep. and they uh, get citizenship. Don't they open up a laundromat or something? Oh, yeah, but you, you didn't. You didn't stay uh, after the credits, though. Yes, no. oh, you get really... that little sequence. At you have the to end stay of the after the credits to a really bad right. movie. Let me just say this: this is probably another show, another time, right? Saturday Night Live Which is really not is funny. Saturday Night Live has not been funny since its first year. Okay, since its first year, it's been downhill ever since. How that show stays? Well, it stays on because it's cheaply cheap to make, and no one else is going to put money into any kind of a show to put on late Saturday night. That's why they do it. But you watch that, and and the same thing has happened over the years is they'll take some fairly slightly funny premise and they'll bang that thing into the ground for 15 minutes. And they have an audience that's going to laugh at everything. It, I guess it's a formula for success. I don't know, but none of those people are funny. Bill Murray is not a funny guy. He is not a funny guy. You know, he's not. Dan Aykroyd... He's a big UFO guy. I guess he's kind of funny. John Belushi, yeah, I don't know, you know, but some of the people that have come and gone. What about uh, playing Carl in Caddyshack? 
Caddyshack's a terrible movie. I'll tell you why. Okay, now this is we're really getting off track here. All right, but the reason that Caddyshack with the drama trying to kill the gopher. I mean, come on. That it was so. What they did was exactly they filmed that movie. Okay, they filmed that movie without Bill Murray in it. All right, and they they screened it for the for the suits, and the suits said this movie is terrible. You have to do something to make this movie funny. So they brought in Bill Murray, and they filmed all his scenes later and edited them in. And you'll notice that a lot of the scenes of him in the movie is just him and the gopher and the scroll who knows what's going on. But that's a that's a bad movie. I'm sorry, it's a bad movie. But anyway, Lois. As Mr. Squirrel and Mr. Rabbit, and that was the explosives. Right. I just okay. wanted to make sure we get that straight. I just right. when they when you have to go in when you have to go in and reshoot stuff and, and edit them in, you know that you got a turkey in your hands that you have to somehow make chicken salad out of chicken you know what. Uh, Lois Lane. Rodney Dangerfield was classic. Well, he's he always funny. Like he's always movies. funny, but but there wasn't enough of him, I guess, you know? I don't know. Well, Mac, I think the new theme song, song for Mac Maloney's Military X-Files should be I'm All Right. Yeah. <laughs> what? Okay, let's go. What did you I'm sorry, Switch. You were, you were muffled. <laughs> he had a donut. Put JJ in a, in a gopher outfit. Switchy dual material. Uh, Lois Lane, please. Next movie, UFO movies we believe should be rebooted. Number seven, the 1950s version of The Thing. The 1950s version Ooh, of The Thing. Up. Thumbs up from Coco. So, Coco, you agree? Yeah, love the movie. I love Carpenter's uh, retake on this movie. Not big. Um, but the original has a quality, much like we talked about Quartermass in the Pit. Yep. Uh, it has a lot of early actors. Uh, the lead from Gunsmoke. Mm-hmm. James uh, Ness plays the monster. Thing. Yep. yep. The, uh, the whole process that goes on there, the, uh, the friction between the scientists, mm. and of course, for me personally, spending some time in the Arctic and the Antarctic. Yes. That was so accurate, the portrayal of the of the banging of heads between us and the military and the science community. It's classic. It really is to me. It's, it's a great one. And I think it's it's a really horrifying parts to it. I, it's a terrifying really well done. Yeah, I should remind the audience what that I about the remake. Coco met his wife in the Antarctica. remake was actually closer to the original story by Joe. Uh, it was a Campbell. Uh, I can't remember his first Joe name. Joe Campbell. It was called Who Goes There? Mm-hmm. And the shape shifting nature of the creature was a lot closer to the original story. However, I agree. The, the first one has got this real uh, suspense element yes. that just pulls you in. Yes, yes. It's, it, it's, I'm sure they call it in the biz a bubble episode. It's basically a bunch of people trapped in a, in a small space with, with the danger on the outside, you know. But just the way they film, and it's filmed, it's 50s, oh. black and white. It's, it, you can't help but be filmed noirish in a way, you know, a lot of shadows and stuff. But let me just tell you before Matt, we go to the Jim, other thing. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. I was going to say, the other thing, you guys, and if you and Gary, this one, though, shows to me something really interesting that Hollywood called early. The war movie was the big thing that preceded all this. And this was, you know, sci-fi now is going to be the big piece that's going to be coming out. Yes. So you have all that, you know, that veteran, you know, we've been to the worst. World War II is over, mm-hmm. the science thing. And now, now we think you know, we, we've cracked the atom, all that stuff. And now... Now there's something frozen in the ice mm-hmm. that, you know, basically keeps on us to get along. Right. Good times. So there's a there's a great scene. And now, now just a little background that I think I remember. Um, there was a very famous director-producer named George Powell. And he actually directed the first 10 minutes of this movie, got the funding for it, and then turned it over to some director whose name we don't know. But the scene that he 
directed and that he filmed. Now, this is not ruining the movie. This is just showing you how cool the movie is. This, you know, expedition lands up in the North Pole. They're up in the Arctic, and I, th I swear they filmed it in the Arctic. And they've re they've had a report of some kind of a crash up there. So they're looking around, looking around, and they realize we can't see it because the ice must have covered it over. And they look and they can see something in the ice. So they go, wow, what is that? You know, it's probably four or five feet down. So one of the scientists said, everyone spread out. Spread out until you can't see the, f the shape underneath you anymore. And they pull back, and these people spread out, and they go into the perfect shape of a saucer. Okay? And the guy says, we've got a flying saucer. And it's just such a—and that's when the movie starts. It's a great, great beginning, you know? And— um, that's I, I saw the second I saw the reboot. John Carpenter, I know he made his millions by having lots of blood and guts in movies and stuff like that. And I'm just not a big fan of the reboot. And I don't like the way it ended because if I can barely remember it, didn't they end just begging for a sequel or something? Switchy. Yeah, it, they left it completely ambiguous. I didn't like that either. I I liked. Uh... I like, I just like, unlike you, I did like the rest of it. I just, uh, I looked at it as a separate film. Mm. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was its own film and Carpenter, I think, I think did a pretty good job. And I, I did enjoy, appreciate that they actually went back to the original story mm. and captured a little more of that, okay. but, uh, it didn't, uh, uh, it, it didn't make me dislike What's... the first one any, any less. No, I mean, no. It was, uh, that was, uh, and then, you know, I remember when we first saw it, we, we saw James Arness was in the credits. Yeah. But we couldn't figure out, where's James Arness? Yeah. We, it didn't dawn on us until the end that who, who where James the, Arness was he's in the, the original thing. Yeah, it's cool. And and how they, you know, I, we can't ruin the movie, but how they finally get rid of him and just the tense, the, the tension that they put into that and how they can detect that he's in the building and stuff like that. And a lot of stuff came from that. That whole scene in Jurassic Park oh, where... Yeah. You know where? Yeah, we're gonna get to you, the movie expert, in a second. The whole scene in Jurassic Park when the kids are in the room and the Raptors are uh, uh, looking for them—that's right out of the original thing. Okay, uh, movie expert. Sorry if we're ignoring you, Gary Olson. No, I do want to plug my uh, new book coming out probably in the next ten years. Uh, wow. Sixteen geniuses in front of the light. Yes. But uh, I talk about Howard Hawks, the director, and uh, especially uh, talking about Cary Grant, Cary Grant, and. Um, uh, Humphrey Bogart were in uh, several of his uh, movies, okay. and, and one recently that I it was to have and have not. Oh yeah, Lauren sure. Bacall, yes. and uh, he was good friends with William Faulkner. Well, this is a Howard Hawks produced movie, oh, and that's that was the confusion of the directors. Mm -hmm. That was the uh, another guy named um, I don't know. He was a, a new direct Christian Nabi. Nabi, right? Uh, yes. It is a lot of controversies, like who directed Poltergeist with uh, Toby um, and, uh, and you know Steven Spielberg. Yes. So uh, yeah, this is this is really so. Anyways, going back to the writing, Ben Heck and William Faulkner, mm. of all people, really very famous writer, very yeah, famous I, American writer, script writer that put a lot of um, a lot of input into this one. Wow, well, they must have given him a paycheck. That's interesting. Okay, next movie. Uh, Lois Lane, these are UFO movies we think should be rebooted. Number six, Earth versus the Flying Saucer. Okay, from the 50s, there you go. This is the, uh, you, it's the same argument as with Independence Day. Um, this was a movie in which there's a special effects wizard. His name is Ray Harryhausen. And if you see what he does, special effects-wise, in the 50s, you'll never forget it. 
he, he used stop action, basically move something, take a picture of it, move something, take a picture of it, and just millions and thousands and thousands of frames and movements. But he does stuff. In this movie, you see flying saucers over Washington, D.C. crash into the White House, crash into the, uh, the Washington Monument. It's not realistic, but it's cool. The way they do it is like very cool. Ray Harryhausen also did a famous fight scene in um, Jason and the Argonauts where he has a guy fight six skeletons. It's unbelievable, and it goes on for 10 minutes. You, you've got to know what I'm talking about, Gary, right? Oh, I, I saw that in my childhood, and I every time it's on TV, I always watch it. <laughs> okay, all right. There he has this four years of film school. Go ahead. Go ahead, Switchy. He also did uh, It Came From Beneath the Sea. Hmm. It Came From Beneath the Sea and Earth Versus the Flying Saucers were two of his early ones. Mm -hmm. uh, it Came From Beneath the Sea also starred Kenneth Toby, Kenneth who starred in The Thing. The Thing, yeah. And uh, you remember Earth Versus the Flying Saucers that uh, there, was, there was some aspect where they couldn't afford to blow up some of the buildings with the with, when the saucers came down. Okay. So when you see the ray hit the... Uh, the, the buildings, they actually had to use stop motion animation to show the buildings. To blow up the building. Well. Oh man, it must so have taken days. Forever. Yeah. Frame by frame. Yeah. I mean, um, I know in it, it came from beneath, what is it? It came from beneath the sea. It's a big octopus. Yeah, the giant right? octopus. Right. And, uh, the octopus only has, the octopus only has six arms because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't right. maneuver the other two in there. But once again, just great. I mean, you know it's fake, but you just you have to marvel at how they did it. It's just uh, crazy. So anyway, so <clears throat> that'd be another good uh, movie to reboot, right? Uh, Mac, uh, I don't know if you know, I don't know if you know anybody that worked worked at General Electric, but uh, there's there's one uh, a Dr. Martin that said, um, oh, let me find my notes here. Uh, that said uh, he wanted the biggest generator Schenectady has Schenectady. to combat the flying saucers. Really? Yeah. And okay. uh, General Electric <laughs> was making the big biggest generators in the world at the time in yes. Schenectady, New York. Schenectady, yes. I was involved, yes, tangentially. And that's where Lois used to live. Can I say that, Lois? She used to be in Schenectady, New York. And I'll tell you, she's the, she's the prettiest thing in it's Schenectady. Yes, the... Anyway, you stepped on your own compliment there, Lois. That's fine. Next movie, please, Lois. Okay, number five okay. is just about every Superman movie. You know, I, I, I'm not even. I'm not even going to get on my soapbox. Switchy, I, I'm hoping you agree with me. I, I well, I, I will for the the first Superman. Well, the in my in modern day with uh, Christopher Reeve. Right. Start with them. We had. Uh, Kirk, Kirk Allen did the serial. Uh, George Reeves did the uh, the TV show. Right. But had high hopes for the first Superman film. And here's here's my was my problem. Uh, and it's really it started with the, the Batman TV show, because the Batman TV show was a spoof. It was camp. Yes, camp. And so everybody making TV shows and movies figured they had to if you're going to do something of that nature, uh, superhero nature, you're going to have to make it silly so you start out with this great film mm -hmm. it starts on on krypton and all those scenes are great yep. <clears throat> and then you get to the daily planet yep and uh, clark Kent, and those are pretty good but then when you get to the villains the villains are as silly and slapstick right, yes. as the ones in the tv show right and any hero worth his salt has to have a nemesis 
that is is uh, worthy, uh, that is convincing, that is it is evil. Right. And here you have uh, who is it? Gene Hackman, who's a good actor. Yep. He's going to blow up California. It's going to slip into the ocean. But he's a clown, so you're not even you don't even feel like anybody's threatened. Right. It just yes. didn't work. Right. Yeah. He's in a bald wig, and it, there's a lot of things. I guess they had to go. Uh, you know, that had they had to bend to his. Uh, his demands. He was a big actor back then. Switchy. I mean, I'm sorry. It looks like Coco. Coco has his thumbs down. Is uh, well, something wrong, Coco? Are you saying you agree? I have no comment. The, the, this that whole franchise is a disaster. Terrible. You know, I don't understand Ruined. why. Now, the, Go ahead. The sequel had some elements. Remember the the uh, the Phantom Zone? Right. Uh, yes. Escapees. Yes. They right. weren't too bad, but there's still some elements of the. Remember the scene where it looks like. Clark Kent is hitchhiking to the uh, North Pole to yeah, get to right. a Yes, yes, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What's they needed a couple extra scenes. Fortress there. of Solitude. Fortress of Solitude. Yes. It's in the North Been Pole. There. What's he? How, how, Blew the helicopter right to it. Did you really? Fortress yeah? of Solitude. Okay. Can you hitchhike well, he, to he it? He didn't even I'm have a helicopter in the, in the movie. <laughs> he can fly. I'm a big Superman comic uh, fan. Go ahead. And I think the best one to resurrect this franchise. In 1995, they came out with Superman against the aliens, and the aliens look like that Sigourney Weaver type of aliens. What? Those those I'm... aliens are just really Hold vicious. All right, hang on a sec. Hang on. Hang on. There was a I mean, movie. I think they ought to just put the Superman on that one. There was a movie. Oh, oh, you're saying combine Superman and the alien movies? Well, no, there was a, in 1995, Superman Comics came out. Oh, comics, with okay. Superman again. I thought I missed oh. a movie. Yeah. And they okay. ought to go ahead and make that on that type of premise. Right. See, that's what I mean, is, is that, and I wrote that in my notes, uh, Lois can probably read them, is that they've started the, the Superman since, since uh, Christopher Reeve. They've started the franchise at least four times. And what they always do is they always go back. To the origin story, you know, like in the first movie, that the best parts of the first movie is on Krypton, even though Milan Brando plays his father. It's it's very kind of spectacular and really sci-fi and everything like that. And it goes down the drain once he gets to Earth, really, you know. But <clears throat> I think you have to. Everyone knows the Superman story. Why can't you do a Superman adventure like you do an Indiana Jones adventure? You don't go back to where Indiana Jones went to you know high school and how he grew up. Every time that you bring that movie out. Everyone knows it. So just come start right off with, here's Superman, here's the problem, here's how he goes and fix it. Um, but they never do it. And I always get back to this thing that the people making the movies these days, especially with comics, especially with the DC, Marvel's doing okay, but the DC movies are terrible. They, 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 they're not comic book fans. I mean, that's the only explanation. Coco, please, then we'll go to the expert. Two things, real quick. You mentioned Marlo Brand, Marlon Brando yes. playing the part of his father after do the tie-in to Saturday Night Live when they did the whole Superman when Christopher Reeves was there. Yes. Whoever oh. was playing the part, I think it was Bellucci that was playing the part of Marlon Brando. Sounds right. Be talking, he says, I'm, I'll return until I return as the reincarnation of as Buddy Rich. <laughs> Unbelievably funny line. You had to, you had to see that whole thing yeah. come together. They had to be funny sometime in 35 years. But Marlon Brando, if you remember, he's in the movie... Three or four minutes, maybe he, he got a million dollars for that. That was that was the kind of attraction, you know, to have someone like him and uh, in the movie. But but my complaint always from Batman and Superman is that, as you say, switch. You camp it up. It's stupid. Why can't you just 
you know, put these as like kind of crime movies, and the only odd thing in the world is Superman, is Batman, and everything else is the same, and make it a really kind of cool detective story, whatever. Gio, you're the expert. What do you think? I agree with it wholeheartedly. I, I just get so, so tired. I'm just re visiting his birth, yes. where he came from, and the people on Kryptonite. It's a big snow. It's just, it gets tiresome. I, I like the idea with the aliens the best. Lois Lane, next They should make him come from Bot. All right, there you go, Switchy. All right, what do you mean by that? Good thing JJ isn't here. Do you say they should come from Bot? Next movie, please. It'd be, it'd be like, you know, <laughs> an origin forged in fire, you know? <laughs> Okay. That he'd have to battle that accent. He'd slap people around. Yes, right. Go ahead, please, uh, Lois. Next movie, move, UFO movies we think should be rebooted. Okay, we're down to four. Good. Four is Invaders from Mars. Okay. One of Switchy's favorite movies, one of mine. Is that the name of it, the one with the sand pit? Invaders from Mars or Invasion from Mars? Oh, yes. It, right. Yeah. And I, and I met the, uh, the guy that played the uh, little boy. Really, uh, yeah? Jimmy Hunt. Jimmy Hunt. Yeah, at that, that one of the monster bad. Okay. Uh, yeah, great, great guy. You can still right. still see. You know, he's got that smiling face. Okay. And uh, he, uh, one thing I did learn that he, he said that uh, now people remember the the uh, the deal where uh, you know that the flying saucer burrows underground Crunches. and his uh, parents get taken over. And kind of a scary. Uh, yes, it is. I mean, when you're watching it as a kid, it's kind yes. of scary because yeah. you know you think you're. Your dad gets taken over, and he's meaner than normal. Well, he beats up the kid. Trouble, and really cranky. Yep. And then at the very cranky. end, you think everything's resolved, and but not. the flying saucer shows up again. And I was oh. so angry as well, a kid. Right. But Jimmy Hunt told me Jimmy that Hunt. in Britain, they wouldn't release it until they filmed an, an ending that was that resolved everything. Happy. Oh, really? So yes. So apparently, there's a DVD in both movies which i want to get my hands on so i can uh, sleep well at night right because i was so unresolved now, about that ending as a kid his his this is why it's a strange movie it's it's made totally on a soundstage okay it's in and it's and therefore it's very atmospheric and and basically this kid lives in a farm mom and dad and the kid and a flying saucer crashes in a sand pit kind of over this hill from their farm and so what you see a lot of, and, 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 and they're Martians down there, and they suck people down through the sand and take them over, brainwash them. But what you see a lot is when, when people go up to the sand mounds, to the, to the sand dune, you're always going, don't go up there, boom, and they're gone, okay? And they come back, <laughs> you know, they come back like zombies. And what happens is the kid's father comes back, and you can tell because there's a little needle in the back of his head. But he gets really violent, and, and he, he beats up the kid in the movie, all right? It, it's very... It's not this kind of happy dappy sci-fi. It's kind of deep, and and no one believes the kid. That's the that's the thing about the movie is all these adults are turning into zombies around him, and no one believes him. You know, so it's a good, really good atmospheric movie. Can you imagine them doing it again there, Switchy? Then we'll go to Gary. Can you imagine them doing it again, or should you just leave it alone? Leave it alone. They did do a really poor effort that uh, Gary probably knows about, but uh, yeah, hey, again, you gotta, you know, you uh, if you're gonna redo it. There's certain elements you, you have, have to, to recapture, and then you you know if you want to get a little bit original, that's fine. Right. But yeah, because again, when you're when you're a little kid and you see that, and he he, I remember there's a a scene where he's talking to a, a nice lady that's listening to him, and he says, "Well, turn around. I need to look at the back of your neck." Yes. Because there's that little little spot where the needle had gone in. It right. does whatever they do, and 
One other quick, quick thing is the, the giant uh, Martians yes. that are underground. Yes. If you look real carefully, yes. you can see the zipper. Yes, you can see back. the zipper. Now, listen, this isn't uh, gone with the wind of sci-fi movies, okay? You can literally see the zipper. And there's a lot of, like, stock footage of them just kind of running around the tunnels. You, you don't know where anyone's going, really. But, but and, and then their leader, we won't even say who he is, but he doesn't look quite like the Martians. Oh, he the looks, leader, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really creepy, creepy right? Man. So... It's so it's like that, but the story itself, in the way that they kind of scare you, you know, is is really well done. It might be a movie that we want to leave alone. Gary, are you familiar with the movie at all? Yeah, it made in 1953. They did make a uh, a remake. I hate to tell you, really? 1986, Invaders from Mars. Toby um, Toby Hooper made it. Karen Black oh, was terrible. in it. Oh, terrible! Uh, Timothy Bottoms. But I, I just want to say this movie. I hate to say, I love to say, when I watch it, there was a lot of uh, Spielberg elements to it. When the kid was seeing that flying yep. saucer, yes. saucer go into the sand pit, yes. I swear that that was directed by Spielberg. Well, you mean Spielberg stole it. Yeah, Spielberg wasn't even born in 53. Well, yeah. He stole it from them. Not no, stole he was, it. He was, what he, well, he, you know, he, he probably saw this on television or whatever. Right. And there are a lot of, uh, you know, that generation directors who have assimilated a yes. lot of the visuals of this particular movie it, it's even mm -hmm. though it's low budget yep it really had a big impact yeah it on, did on yeah those, yeah uh, it's a creepy movie so uh lois uh let's uh go right along here the next movie ufo movies we believe should be rebooted <laughs> top 10 go ahead please all right number three is 2001 2001 okay <laughs> All right, um, 2001, A Space Odyssey came out in 1968, and I know someone, a very good friend of mine who went to film school who wrote his dissertation on 2001, Lois. You might know him as well. But basically what it is is, I mean, you have to see it. It's a real kind of artsy movie from the 60s, okay, a little psychedelic. But to me, I mean, it's a great movie, but unintentionally a great movie. It's a great technical movie, but it's so obtuse, if I could use that word, uh, opaque the plot that it was supposed to have a narration they had a, they filmed they recorded a narration for the entire film and in, in two days before they released the film they decided to take the narration out and make it mysterious and they did mission accomplished because it's a very kind of but very kind of artsy and kind of highbrow I think if they were going to make it and I know they made 2010 but if they went back and made 2001 and it had so many special effects in the 60s that are really cool once again, you have to kind of stay true to that, but do it better. And when I say it, like there's a scene in where there's a, there's a waitress in a space station where there's no gravity, and she literally walks up the wall and walks upside down. And what you're watching is she's walking in place, and the camera and the set is moving on a big, like, barrel. Um, so you don't have to do that these days. And get a little bit more into the story. It was just basically if you find something on the Earth, on the Moon, and on Jupiter— it's an alien race, an ancient alien race, saying you're ready for us to, um, I want to say expose ourselves to you, but to reveal ourselves to you. Gio, is it a, it, it's a little too oddy for you? Stanley Kubrick, 68. Well, uh, I, I just want I just had uh, Jeffrey Tobin on my mind. Okay, hang said, on. But, yeah, um, go ahead. Yes, uh, 1968. You got to recognize where science fiction movies were before 2001. <laughs> Yes. And then after. And it was a milestone in movie history. 
that you, number one, Tom Hanks wanted to do a remake of it in the late nineties. Really, I think a lot of people with sensibility said, "Don't, yeah, don't even don't touch it. it. Don't even touch it." Right. I know everybody hates the ending. Yeah, Hal Sagan has suggested to Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick not to show the aliens like they right. did in uh, Encounters of the Third World because that would be too goofy. So it's kind of Third a world. you know the energy force that aliens millions of years from now will have instead of the bodies that's what appears at the right. end and it was really confusing to people right it is one of the most in-depth science fiction movies you could ever have right. we studied it in school at emerson college yes. and uh, i can't say enough in the movie it's it's it's, just it's interesting to watch perfect yeah it's perfectly made stanley kubrick it's perfect for what it is it's perfectly made everything in it there's every little detail you can possibly imagine when they're eating food in space, you can see like the Howard Johnson's napkin and that kind of stuff. You know, it's really detailed learning. But anyway, we have to move along because I guess I was knocking at the door. Please, Let's Lois. Let's get the zero gravity toilet. Yeah, zero gravity toilet. He's trying to figure it out, right? Lois, what's the next movie, please? Okay, number two, Men in Black. Men in Black, real yeah. quick. Okay, I'm just going to jump on this real quick. This is the theme for the night. In my opinion, they should take out all the comedy, all the camp, all the nonsense from these Men in Black movies and make a really good, serious, dramatic Men in Black because you don't have to invent it. Just go and look at all the really cool Men in Black stories and put them into a some kind of a script and make it film noir. Imagine Men in Black as a film noir movie. And film noir was like Humphrey Bogart, Humphrey Bogart in The Maltese Falcon. Lots of shadows, you know, filmed at night and so on and so forth. I think Men in Black would be a great dramatic exactly. movie. What do you say, Switchy? About the silly factor, but one other thing. I would make their origins uh, ambiguous. I would not necessarily mm -hmm. suggest that they're ETs. They right. might just be, they, they should leave that open. Right, yeah. where they're actually from. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, Gio, your you're our director was originally, yeah, your favorite director originally was supposed to direct the movie, but Spielberg? I would love to see him direct the uh, remake or at least the fourth one. Okay, Quentin Tarantino. Would oh, that be awesome? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Uh, next movie, please. Lois Lane. Top ten UFO okay. movies that should be rebooted. Go ahead. We are down to number one. Number one. <laughs> C. See, the Close Encounters of the Third Kind, okay? Gary and I have fought over this for years, okay? I think Close Encounters, even though that was also part of my friend from Emerson's dissertation, I think Close Encounters is a flawed film in a big, in a lot of ways, okay? First of all, well, there is a little bit before its time with the effects, okay? Some of the effects aren't really that good. They're not good to scale to the people and so on and so forth, but they are dazzling, which is good. The scene where the kid is taken by the UFOs out in the farmhouse going up the doggy door is very good. But originally what the plot of that movie was, the script was, was that they were going to take a military guy who doesn't believe in UFOs and he investigates it. And at the end, he is, becomes a believer because he sees what happens at the end of the movie. For some reason, they bring in Richard Dreyfuss, who by his own admission and a lot of people who were involved with that movie were coked out the entire time. And when you see him on the screen, you can tell that he's a little dozed out. And he becomes like the center of the movie. So you have this weird kind of, it's a long movie, but there's this like hour in the middle of it, or it seems like an hour, where he is building mountains out of mashed potatoes and rocks and mud and driving his wife crazy. 
and it's like you could have done this in two minutes okay but they didn't and i think that they were yeah and with the, with they i think they caved into you know dreyfus he was a big star at the time he was in jaws blah, blah, blah. so i think that you go back to the original script and it's a little x-file-ish the tv show we haven't heard from the lawyers yet and and make it kind of serious make it like that you know and and have the real special effects do the special effects and stuff and um and and i i think it would be a good reboot that's my i'm going to go to the geo the expert the pacing was definitely off and also Jacques Vallée who uh the yes. French character was based on yes uh, suggested to Spielberg that they not necessarily make it ET that they uh. make it something else or again make it ambiguous yes but right Spielberg yeah. said no no way it. right yeah go ahead Gio you agree with me or not yeah, this is really after several uh, script. Uh, this went through several revisions. Yes, this is the only script that Spielberg really constructed from really? beginning to end. So, if yeah. it's got any flaws, you got to blame the writer. Spielberg there's some parts in it, it, you know. There's some parts in it that are really good. Like I say, if they made it five years later, the special effects would be good. All right, but just the way the story is told, and this whole this whole overemphasis on Dreyfus building, you know this devil's tower mountain that he's having visions of and that he has to go to it's just yeah. it's an uneven the timing of the movie is off yeah coco please i want to add the scene where they uh chip meets and they play the musical mm -hmm. notes and they have it that was actually filmed in mobile downtown airport mobile alabama along the bay yep uh, you can actually see part of the uh, of the hangar structure facility there they set up and right. uh, there's a very uh small click of us that remember uh from the movie when we were there in the 90s and in the 80s and 90s you right. can see part of the of it um, right it's uh it's just one of those neat little mystiques Spielberg must like that area because he also filmed scenes for jaws oh. he filmed over in florida about uh 50 miles uh, -huh. uh east oh. uh, on a beach near pensacola for the same reason also a terrible movie jaws it's not a good movie i'm sorry gary i know that you're in love with it but that's another show Man. Anyway, so listen, thank you, Gary, for joining us. Very famous Hollywood author, Gary Olson. What's the name of your book again? Fifteen? Oh, hang on there. Fifteen Geniuses Behind the Lens. Yes. Take a breath. And Olson, O-L-S-E-N. You can find it on Amazon.com. Okay, here we go. Thanks. Let's give him a round of applause, please, so I don't have to put it in later. Gio, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll talk to you soon, okay? Okay. Thank you. Pay your electric bill there, brother, all right? Have a light on next. Why don't we why don't, oh, why don't we oh, we have to say goodbye to Lois too. The drag. Thank you, Lois, for joining us. Thank you. Okay, and we'll see you soon, I hope. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Okay. Bye. Thank you, Lois. Sorry. Okay. All right. Bye. There she goes. Wow. She left rather abruptly. Anyway, why don't we I have to admit I enjoy uh Geo's uh, whole third man uh, thing tonight with the, uh, the the low light. I'm just looking for really uh, yes. Joseph to pop yeah. out at any minute or, or Orson Welles. How do we know if he's even? How do we know if he's even there? Why, you know. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Geo, the big O. Uh, so why don't we take a commercial break now, and we'll be right back after this. You're listening to Mac Maloney's Military Exile Show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. Coco's here, Switch is here, JJ might be here soon. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. UFOs are found in Renaissance art, on ancient coins, and etched on cave walls. They're even reported in the Bible. 
But more surprising is when UFOs are seen the most in times of war. Through centuries, thousands of UFO sightings have been made by high-ranking officials, military pilots, and ordinary soldiers. Often, these fantastic appearances occur at the height of great battles. From World War I to D-Day to Korea, Vietnam, and beyond, military investigators are baffled. Why do UFO sightings spike so drastically during wartime? Could it be mistaken aircraft? Or is someone or something looking in on us? In UFOs in wartime, what they didn't want you to know, Mac Maloney chronicles centuries of these incredible sightings and tries to solve the puzzle of why so many UFOs are seen while humanity is at war. Read about the scare ships, the ghost planes, and the ghost rockets, alien giants in the jungles of Vietnam, UFOs controlling our ICBM bases, dogfights with flying saucers during the Gulf War, and more. 300 pages of unbelievable stories, along with many startling photographs. That's UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know, by Mac Maloney. On sale at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. And I just kept going on and on about myself. I'm taking a leak in the driveway. He says, I know you like to talk to total stranger. The story's got nothing to do with the Bruins game. It's what happened with Grandma. I was wondering if those were sadomasochism straps or something. <laughs> But I digress uh, from what I don't know. Get into the beautiful mind of Juan Juan only on the Mac Maloney Military X-Files show. Style show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Mac Maloney. Wow, what a show we have for you tonight. Very quickly, no JJ yet. Okay, he's on a secret mission, but he might be calling in. Commander Cobra is with us up there in his compound up in the great state of Maine. Now, Coca. I am I am home tonight at the compound. At the compound. How are the how are the animals, should we ask? Very good. Uh this is uh uh, Cobra is uh, preparing for the next arrival oh. to the uh, to the menagerie. Really? What is it? A goat, a hoss, what? A rabbit? Another chicken? What do you expect? Going in the direction of the pig. Oh, really? Oh, my. Oh, God, that's right. Okay. And I've been told that they can be housebroken, and I said, we're not doing that. Really? Holes. Oh, no, you're not Details on board. Details to follow. Okay. In the next months. All right. Okay. Today's uh, pig is tomorrow's. Let's put it this challenge. way. Yes, go ahead. Mac, I, I've never really uh, felt the need to share this on the airways. But go ahead. I do understand now why older couples sometimes have separate bedrooms. <laughs> okay, we went from a discussion about a pig being born to separate bedrooms. It's fine. That's okay. That's what makes the world go round. Listen, thank you, Coco, TMI. Up there in Battle Creek, uh, National Correspondent, Switchblade Steve Ward, Switchy. Great to be here tonight. Okay. And everything's good with you? Uh, everything is beyond wonderful. Okay, what are you doing? What are you writing someone in the middle of the show? What are you sending someone an no, email? I, uh, You're busy, I, I know I that. I was trying to get an image up here. Oh, okay. In, in, uh, I, I'm, my timing's okay. a little off. But, Maybe uh, that's what got that guy tubing in trouble. It would, be it careful. Would, it would have been very funny if we had gotten up on time. 
right, let me introduce our guest, okay? Then I have to come back to you, Switchy, for you know what. Dr. Bob Gross out there okay. in Chicago. Dr. Bob, how you doing? Great. Good wow. to be here again. Thank you. You look so dignified. We have to be a TV show because you really got the uh, look going on there. I really um, I admire that. First of all, you have all your hair, which is which is a good starting point. <laughs> all right. And you used to be a uh, musician. You were a working musician. Yes, sir. Right. Right. Do you do it at all, ever, anymore? Not anymore. At one time, uh, because of the embouchure and getting older, Okay. The uh, I, I did buy a wind synthesizer and worked with that a little bit, but then I, I kind of gave up on that. Right. You were a sax player, basically, right? Uh, primarily a sax player? Yes, I, I was a trained classical clarinetist, but then I doubled on saxophone so I could play in jazz and rock bands. Right, yes. But you also played keyboards at one point, too, or did I dream that? No, I, I did play keyboards. As, because my uh, undergraduate degree was in music education, I had to learn how to play every instrument up mm. to a high school level. Wow, huh. Yikes. So I played a little bit of everything. Right, yeah. Anyone can play synthesizers, though, right? I mean, let's face it, in a way. Just about, especially the early ones that were monophonic, you could mm -hmm. only play one key at a time, so that was pretty easy. Right, yes, yeah, sure, okay. Uh, so, well, well, thanks for joining us, and um, uh, we're going to talk about Thank tonight, you. Uh, you know, why isn't the truth out there after all these years of, you know, quote-unquote investigations and so on? You know, why don't we, we don't know anything really more than we knew many, many years ago. But first, I have to remember to do this, I have to just switch back the switchy very quickly, Okay. And I have to ask you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? This is this is like the biggest segment of our show, the most listened to. So I have to, you know, entertain that might the troops. Be, uh, depressing for our guest to uh -oh. think that uh, this is the, the biggest segment. Well, but anyway, hey, if this, uh, start somewhere. A heaping bowl of sugar frosted flakes. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, and but wait a minute, that's not all. Go ahead. A little later in the morning, I chased it. With some chocolate Jello pudding, oh, one of those little oh, pudding cups. You know? Yes. Okay. Now that's I'm not I'm not quite done yet. You're not done. Later in the afternoon, uh, not quite. I mean, it was too late to be lunch, too early to be dinner. Never too. Early. I went out to Denny's Diner. Go ahead. And I got a everything. No, the ultimate omelet, oh, with wow. except mushrooms. Yeah. With okay. uh, with toast. You don't want to have those. Coffee. Wow. Huh. Yeah. The hobo. They call them hobo omelets sometimes. Everything's in it. Yeah, wow, good for you. Okay, then you, then you went and you ran your 10 miles, right? That you do every day? Well, uh, you know, you can, it's something called creative visualization. In your mind, which, yes. Uh, you don't I, have I, to I actually do it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right, good for you. So, so Frosted Flakes, let's just review. Frosted Flakes, coffee, and 2% milk, a whole milk. Absolutely. Two percent? No, two percent. Okay, good. Yeah, that's good for you. Yeah, and all that sugar. Pepsi really up. Down whole yeah, Pepsi up. And then, and then, then you had some pudding just to kind of bridge you over to the omelet later on, right? Well, well later on, it wasn't, wasn't wasn't right after. You know, you got to pace yourself. Wow. Yeah, I'm gonna go home and eat some carrots. Thank you, Switchy. I should say now that we're on the, uh, you know, on the on the topic of this, sometime coming up soon, uh, Switchy is going to be a honorary employee at uh, Mac Mullings Military X-Files official donut shop, which is in Battle Creek, Michigan, Sweetwater's Donut Mill. Whoa. And uh, we're going to have, hopefully, the media will be there, and um, Switch will be there signing autographs and, uh, you know, I guess selling people donuts. He's already got the apron, courtesy of Coco. 
which has the uh, McMoney logo on it. And um, we should market those things, CC. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think probably we could. <laughs> I asked CC, but that's it okay. pretty good. What are you uh, speaking of carrots? What are you eating there, Cobra? What are you eating? Uh, uh, raisins and almonds. Oh, really? right okay, it's not. Wow, it's not Jello pudding, huh? <laughs> it's it's That's good. Checks mix, right? Has the has the four basic food groups in it. Good, good for you. So anyway, let's get to um, the topic of this uh, segment. Um, so, Dr. Bob, I know that you've researched UFOs for quite a while, and you've been involved with them for it's it's quite a while, right? More or less. Yes, officially since about 1985. Okay. Wow. All right. What what got you interested in? You know, really quickly, what got you interested in in the beginning? What started you off? Was it that uh, parking that you went there with? <laughs> no, no, we shouldn't get into that. When you went parking with the girl when the uh, Toto song was on, was it that? Uh, Actually, it was. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, wow. I think what really got me interested was back when I was a kid in 1965 yes. and hearing the Kecksburg case being yes. broadcast on KDKA radio. In Pennsylvania, right, yeah. Yeah, it's a very famous case, the Kecksburg case. Is uh, Just Google it. It's, it really is an intriguing case. Never really knew what happened there, but there's a lot of elements in it. So, but, you know, you feel as, as I do in a way is that, um, you know, if we can start the clock ticking somewhere in 1947 when Kenneth Arnold made a big deal out of seeing these flying saucers, and then all of a sudden people seeing flying saucers like crazy, Roswell happens, and the world, and, and the United States especially, becomes kind of flying saucer crazy. Um, so the Air Force, you know, pretended to start a program to investigate it, and um, and, and like the first six months, they came back with this conclusion that they're probably not of this earth, but the person who was running the Air Force at the time, this guy named Vandenberg, who they named the uh, spaceport out in California after him, he said, uh, this isn't the conclusion we wanted you people to have. Here they are, the Pentagon calling me now. So, so you know, they went back and they, they did like their research and they came back and they said basically their hallucinations are – you know, that the people were, um, you know, religious zealots or whatever. And that was it. That was it as far as the government telling us, okay, we're really kind of looking into these things. But obviously, as we now know, they were all throughout the years, secretly and not so secretly with Project Blue Book, okay? But but there have been civilian UFO research groups around for a long time too, okay? MUFON is one of them. And and then just other independent researchers and people writing books and so on and so forth. But we don't know anything any more than we know since 1947, Dr. Bob. Do you agree? I agree totally. And I like to say, like, since I was introduced to you, you've been right on, I think, with your projections about what the, you know, the UFO phenomenon is about. And Yes, go right? ahead. Yes, yep. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, oh, okay. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Wow, what happened? The aliens took us over. Go ahead. But um, so you know, I got thinking. It's it's now. It's in 2020, and it's been 70 years since the 1947 UFO flap started. Right. And we still really don't know much more than we did. Right. And my, I, I've since my experiences, and I've had quite a bit of them in researching, and I belong to several ufology groups, I think I've got a pretty good handle of what is a big issue that's causing us not to know what the truth is. 
Right. Right. So, but why is that? Is it, are there, is there some? For, I mean, generally speaking, are there some forces in the government that are just preventing us from seeing this, or is it just that no one wants to put the money and the time and the expertise into it? Well, actually, and again, this is my, you know my opinion based on on my research, but it's a little bit of everything. And one of the biggest issues that I'm finding is with the uh, civilian, let's call it civilian UFOlogy organizations like MUFON. I've 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 belonged to the the PASA, Pennsylvania Association for the Study of the Unexplained, back in 1985. And I belonged to MUFON for a while in 2011. And then I also belonged for a little bit with the uh, SCU group. And uh, that was 2018. And through my experiences, and that's one of the things that I wanted to talk with all of you about tonight, I've come to the conclusion a, a big part of the issue as to why we don't know more about UFOs is because of the ufology organizations including mufon including the big ones um yes do you think it's uh a conscious effort or is it because they're i don't know just kind of stumbling around not knowing what they're doing well it, it's both and I, now in my case and what i have put together tonight i have a, a series of you know emails that i've been getting from a uh, literary agent. Now, I don't want to mention his name, but I have actually evidence in print that uh, from a MUFON-based organization that they really don't want to look at what might be out there. Is it the... Uh... Is it because well, is it because they don't want it to be solved because then they won't have anything to do or an organization to run, or what 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 would their reasoning be that they don't really want people to know what's going on? Well, there, there's a couple of reasons, and actually, I brought brought you know the emails with me, but one of them is that the I actually I, I think I I did a lot of research on both Kecksburg and on Roswell. And I've been doing it for years. And I really think I have a handle on what really happened in both of those cases. And according to this literary agent that I was working with, who now is in partnership with MUFON, they stated that um, putting that information out there would cause schisms in the UFO community. And now I have all this in writing, and this is the first time I'm revealing this, but it would cause schisms in the UFO community. Well, I know there's already uh, certain schisms where, you know, you, there's a certain faction, uh, you have sort of the John Keel, Jacques Vallée faction that views uh, a certain uh, paranormal element or something a little more ethereal, something a little bit, you know, getting away from nuts and bolts, but then you also have the, the faction that is strict nuts and bolts ET. Yes. You mean that kind of thing? Or uh, is it something else you're talking about? Well, I, I am talking about that type of thing. But an, another spinoff of that is the fact uh, I was doing scientific research about UFOs, and I uncovered some things. And I was informed by, again, with this person that ended up being a partner with MUFON, 
that um, it was too sophisticated, it was too academic, and that whatever I would have to write would have to be on the level of mass market media. And most mass market media novels are at a seventh grade level. And sure. that because even though my research was pretty solid, very solid, in fact, Wait a second. they ahead. wouldn't do anything with it because it wouldn't sell. Mm -hmm. So they would want you to take your research and dumb it down. Well, they didn't want my research, first of all. <laughs> they didn't want it at all. And that, that's what I think is kind of unique. And that's why I wanted to bring it up to you, all of you. But, uh, you know, it, they, it's being admitted in writing from somebody who would have been a partner in MUFON. And, you know, that this, the research that I did, and, and they, they said they had never read anything in that much detail about these events. Well, but you, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go, you go ahead. But uh, that they, you know, was in a lot of detail and they've never read anything with that much detail and that it essentially debunked two major UFO events that, you know, that was, that was a great idea. But they said because too many people that they deal with that who write about those events they're, they're, their living would go down the tubes. So you're, they have too much invested in these ideas and don't want somebody like you that's done the research to shake their foundations. That, that's part of it, yes. And it's, I, I, I found it, it's kind of, it was a kind of a unique situation that that happened, but I, I thought that was uh, you know, pretty unique that I have that in writing in an email. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of depressing. Uh, yeah, you, I know. Can you give us some ideas about, you know, that the, these things you've uncovered that, uh, that some people in the, in the UFO community don't want anything to do with? Well, mostly, well, for example, like the, the Roswell case, because it's kind of like the cornerstone of UFOlogy. You're right. And that, I'd say that is the major one. Um, and because I found, I did some research and I was finding some things because I lived in New Mexico for almost a decade. Okay. And I, I, I was on the New Mexico gang task force who they, we met in Roswell. So whenever I was in Roswell doing training or meetings with that group, I'd also interview people who were in, you know, living in Roswell. And there were, I mean, there were a lot of things going on in Roswell back in the, you know, the forties. Uh, because it was like an aerospace mecca because of, you know, you had White Sands there and, and you had Alamogordo and there were experts in balloons and experts in rockets. And there were a lot of things that people kind of just ignored. And in my mind, in my way of thinking, that there were some things that happened. Like, well, I can give you a real quick example. Like in... Uh, it was 1948, in May of 1948. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Al Alamogordo area there. It turned into, it's Holloman Air Force Base now. Yes, right, yeah. But yeah. in that area, they were working with aluminum-coated polyethylene balloons in May of 1948, and they were being launched regularly from Alamogordo in, in May of 1948. Now. The Roswell material basically was found, you know, in 1947 and around July. But that material, you know, they found that was like a precursor of Myler 
Mm -hmm. they, those balloons were being made of that in 1948, and they didn't just pop up. So they had to be testing it at some point. Right. And that's one of the big elements of the Roswell story yes. is that they found this this material that uh, is that the stuff where they said they uh, it, it it crinkled up like yes. like aluminum and then unfolded again, right? It goes back to and its so, form shape. Yes. But the, and okay, well, I don't think too many people know that, like you said, that they were they had been working on this kind of material uh, in the same general area and mm -hmm. testing some of these balloons. Yes, and that and, was and, that's tied to such a uh, sensitive mission. Yes. Um, right. Yes. Because it predates the ability of U-2s and SR-71s. We didn't have satellites. We were losing lots of airplanes. And when the Soviets detonated their uh, hydrogen bomb, they wanted to know what else was going on. And this was this project was based on that ability to try to send these balloons, get them up to altitude. They even flattened out like a saucer. Yes, we had. The sad part, what you're talking about, Bob, is that and I think what your frustration is, is that people do not want to apply a scientific method. They have a conclusion, right. and they're only going to accept facts that go to the conclusion, and they disregard things that don't fit. Because they don't have to. Well, not only that, but they're, well, they're also leaving out a whole other element that they're not looking into. Like, the hardly, they hardly ever mention Dr. Robert Goddard. Yes, right, the rocket. Yeah. He was working on a ranch. Right in Roswell. He had a ranch in Roswell mm -hmm. that he was working on rockets. Mm. And he was in communication like with the Germans in the V2 rockets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was actually in communications with the Germans starting in 1936. Right. And he yeah. and I, I found this out by talking with people that because there's a, a Dr. Goddard Museum or something like that in mm -hmm. New Mexico. And I spoke with some of the people who were working. There. He, he was the guy who but basically came course, up with the idea of of, of uh, staged rockets. You know, he was the first guy who could get a rocket yes. to take off and have kind of stabilizing fins and that kind of stuff. You know, he was the really first like the father of rocketry. They do, you know, call him that sometimes. Rob. He was originally from Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah. Is it? Yes, he is. So, and uh, he was doing. Yeah, well, it's, he it's, was doing work. He was actually talking with the Germans because they were working on the V two, mm -hmm, and this right. was like 1936. Mm -hmm. Then they found out that you know they were kind of stealing his work, and he mm -hmm. thought he was stealing their work. There you go. So, and in 1939, they stopped that communication. Mm -hmm. Wow. There but was then some, Goddard, yeah. uh, there was another thing. And this was in 1945. Now, we're still in 1940s, but 1945, there was a science fiction writer by the name of Arthur C. Clarke. Oh, yes. And he wrote an article about something called extraterrestrial relays. Okay. And what he was talking about were communications yeah, satellites, satellites and that geocentric, I think it's called geocentric orbit. Right. Right. And he was talking about both active and passive communications satellites what is that uh, what is this what we is, didn't have any satellites yet and what was the mileage what is what did, you have to go out you can you could put a satellite out at a geosynchronous orbit and it's i forget how many miles it is out and it and basically the the earth will turn underneath it it's always in a stationary orbit because you don't move very much or at all well, it, and that there's is, two ways it works back one where the satellite always stays in the same spot in yes. relationship to the planet yes right yeah 
And that's why there was essential for the communications. You place a ring of these and you always have them in the right spot all the way around the planet and they move with the same speed. Oh, with it, yeah. Wow. Mm, that's amazing they can do that. But, you know, we're talking to Dr. Bob Gross about uh, this idea that, you know, that people have been looking into flying saucers since at least 1947, but we never get any kind of conclusions. We just get a lot of noise, you know, and that's another thing, too. That bothers me is that 90% of what you see out there is just nonsense. I hate to say it. I know we'll probably lose listeners or whatever, but it is. It is. And, you know, you, you come up with these fantastic stories. The Dulcie Mountain is the one I always pick on because there are people who have written oh. books, who have made movies, who do interviews, who make money off of this story that there are 50,000 aliens in this uh, mountain down in uh, New Mexico and that the U.S. government— is uh, allowing them to stay there, even though they, uh, you know, uh, frequently take humans, enslave them, and bring them up to the moon to do something. Okay, and and they turn humans into octopuses. It's it's insane. Okay, and it started out with this like crazy disinformation command. We could do an entire show on, but here's here's the thing. It's like you 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 can't believe this stuff. I mean, you can't believe it, but you can't. Let yourself believe the stuff, even though it's almost like reading a comic book or a sci-fi story. You have to look at the other 10% that has not uh, been, you know, um, researched, that, 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 that has no answer other than this is just plain nonsense. How's that, Dr. Bob? Yes, that's, you're, you're right on. Have you ever seen the movie? I don't know if I'm allowed to mention this on your show, but it's called The uh, Mirage Men. Uh, no, go ahead. Tell well, us I've seen, about it. I've got the book, part of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original book. What did and they do? Now, it, and it was out a couple of years ago. It's called Mirage Men. It's a documentary. Mm-hmm. What are they doing? What are the Mirage Men doing? Well, well they're actually counterintelligence experts. Hmm. And they're basically stirring up stories so that the the average person thinks they are seeing UFOs and aliens, mm-hmm. and it's actually government projects. Right, yeah. Well, you know, that happened too. I mean, you know, back in the, in the early 50s when they saw a lot of UFOs over the White House, for instance, and it was a big flap. And when you, you know, when you hear about really what happened in August, I think in 51 or 52, it's really kind of creepy. If it happened today, man, oh, the whole world would come to a stop. But anyway, you know, where the CIA, that's when they got involved. And, and what bothered them the most was that when this was happening, when people were seeing UFOs, formations of UFOs over Washington, D.C., and was Andrews Air Force Base back then, and also National Airport, which is now Ronald Reagan Airport, is that so many people, here they are now, called the White House. So many people called the Pentagon, okay. and, and they jammed up the phone lines. And the CIA saw that as a direct threat to our national security because they figured, well, if UFO people can do it, the Russians can do it too, and we don't want that happening. So that's when they started this kind of campaign of the ridicule factor where you know that they you know they were te- they were testing stuff out west all the time they've they've been doing it for years okay because yes. it's clear skies right and when people would see it and they'd see little uh, notices in the newspaper flying saucer seen at this certain kind of time then the people running the top secret weapons program said well hey someone spotted us i mean you know they kind of used it to their advantage a little bit but they always made sure that you know back in the 50s they put out kind of stories and it, they always made it that the person originally reporting the incident of the sighting, you know, could be a little crazy. You know, it's a campaign. Yeah, because because even like towards the end of World War II, they captured a lot of the V two rockets and then brought them back mm-hmm. so that Goddard could take a look at them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Well, huh. He was examining, and now he, he died in '45. But I found out that even though he passed away in 1945, his wife still continued some of his projects, hmm. and his rocketry team stayed in the uh, Roswell area even through 1947 when the the alleged UFO incident happened. Right. So, but you hardly hear anyone talking about that. Yeah, and then funny. Yeah, the Robert Goddard, the father of rocketry. So listen, we have three minutes to go in this segment, the first segment. So why do you think that it's, you know, why haven't we learned anything? Not anything. There isn't even one piece of evidence, really, that anyone can pull out and say, here it is, and have it examined, and so on. You hear all these pieces of evidence. They never really materialize. Why is it, Bob? Is it is it something that's impossible to know? Could that be it? Uh, we just aren't high enough on the intellectual scale to understand what's going on? No. Again, my, my opinion is what my research shows is that there's a like a perfect storm of miscommunication out there. Mm-hmm. And, and now, because I have the evidence in these emails, groups like Roswell, or yeah, like Roswell, like the uh, ufology organizations like MUFON. Yes. They are part of the problem. They are part of the problem, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've, well, we shouldn't really dump on the muffins, but, you know, anytime I've had any kind of dealing with them, it's kind of gone sideways. But I'll tell you what, talk about going sideways. Why don't we take a commercial break now, and we'll be right back with part two of uh, Why Isn't the Truth Out There with Dr. Bob Gross. Switchy is here, and also Coco is here, and JJ might be calling in, and we have a special guest coming in in the next segment. How's that? You okay with that switch? You okay with that that Coco? I'm seeing thumbs up from Coco. Yes. Switchy, can you give me the thumbs up? We're good. Hey, that's not your thumb. Yep. Oops. Okay. okay. <laughs> Let's take a commercial break now. We'll be right back after this. Who's flying ghost airplanes over the city of Los Angeles? Why are the northern lights appearing over America in the daytime? How can an entire fleet of warships suddenly disappear at sea? Find out in Matt Maloney's new book, Battle of the Wingmen, number 20 in the best-selling Wingman series. Follow the adventures of Hawk Hunter as he and his friends sail the world's largest aircraft carrier into the vast unknown. Can Hawk save America from an attack by a mysterious Asian army? Who is the mysterious redhead haunting his dreams? And who will win the dogfight of the century? Who is the best fighter pilot in the world? Who really is Top Gun? Find out in Wingman number 20, Battle of the Wingmen by Mac Maloney. On sale now on Amazon and at bookstores everywhere. I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I had to drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help, but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit HFOTUSA.org.
Welcome back, everyone, to Macaroni's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Macaroni. Wow, what a show we've gotten ourselves involved in. First of all, JJ isn't here. No one one, which is really kind of strange because the um, show went off the rails a little while ago. He's usually the cause of it, but not tonight. Up there in his compound, real quick, I got an email saying that the introductions take too long at the beginning of segments there, Coco. So Commander Cobra is with us. Koki. As always, privilege to be on the wing, Mac. Okay. Switch the chicken wing. Switch our uh, national correspondent, Steve Ward. Switch late Steve Ward up there in Battle Creek, Michigan. It's a privilege to be here on the ground. Okay. Super. As I said, no JJ tonight. He's on a secret mission. But joining us is Dr. Bob Gross, musician slash UFO researcher. Looking very, what's the word? He looks very, um, you know, if I went to old. go see, not old. <laughs> if I went to heaven and God the Father was there, he'd look like you. I've said that more than once. <laughs> I don't look? think you'd find me in that place. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's right. You were a musician. That's true. I keep forgetting that. <laughs> yeah, I was a musician. Yeah, you know where you're going. <clears throat> so, but also joining us and lightening up the show is some friends of the show, the Ghost Sisters from Ohio, I think, Mandy and Jennifer. How are you tonight, ladies? Good. 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 How are you? Can't you tell? <laughs> anyway, wow, took a long. Yikes. <laughs> anyway, so we're talking about this idea tonight. Thanks for joining us, girls. And we'll talk about what you guys do a little bit later, okay? Remind me. But we're talking about Bob has been doing this research and it and it and asks an interesting question. Since nineteen forty seven, more or less, UFOs have been in the um the the, the mind of the American public, because that's when flying saucers really kind of the the term was coined. And, and for all those years, we've heard about flying saucers and the military and people looking into them, but we don't have any answers. And now it's like 70 years later, more than 70 years later, and not one real viable answer that you can point to it and here's evidence and here's a scientific way of explaining it. it. It has not happened yet. So we're talking about that problem, why that hasn't happened. And one of the things we talked about is that, you know, when people write books or they give lectures on stuff having to do with the paranormal UFOs, a lot of them are self-published, and no one has to, you know, read them. You know, in, in one book that I did, UFOs in Wartime, On Sale Everywhere, um, by Penguin Books. I, they had, like, their legal department vet this thing, okay? And I get back this a notebook of things, change this, change that. It was a pain in the ass to do. But I did my best to at least present stuff that had, like, two sources and one of them not being Wikipedia, okay? It takes a lot of work to do and it's easier just to make it up and say the nazis are on the moon and so on and i think that that you know kind of you know, adds noise to it dr bob i keep going to you am i right yes you are extremely right extremely right so 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 how do we fix it are you asking me yes or god the father oh yeah. okay um i my opinion and this is going to go over really big is to reform ufology because that's a starting place. Is that all? Okay. And, uh, you know, you've got kind of three choices. Either you can tear it all down and tear it up and start all over again, or you can tear down ufology and just leave it go, or you can go in and try to turn it around. Mm-hmm. But- and uh, I've just had, again, you know, I've, you know, I did a lot of research at Penn State and so forth. Yes. And there's really a like a perfect storm of misinformation mm-hmm. out there 
about UFOs, and I, I've seen five of them. I really believe that they exist. Yes. Okay. Yes. And they're very complex. Yes. But UFOlogy is too simple. Yes. And it needs to be like an interdisciplinary approach to UFOlogy. That means money. And though. luckily, now that I have some kind of evidence, I can start. Right. It needs money, though. You know, someone like Paul Allen or one of these really rich people have put money. Coco was raising his hand like a kid in class. Coco. Oh, here, um, Dr. Bob and I were talking on the break, and this has a lot of religious kind of overtones to me, and I'm not getting into the whole, I'm talking about the, the structure of religious groups. He's talking about a reformation. I mean, that's what it takes. Yes. You, you, we've gone down a certain path. People have to get together and say, we have to reform hey, basis of how we're doing this. He looks like Martin The Luther. scientific method, you know, you know the, the, the scientific method uh, exists. It has to be followed. You, you put that 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 forth. And then, and then a renaissance comes. Right? I mean, that's how all these things happen. Yeah, it's true. But it's going to take the declaration. So maybe he looks like Martin Luther. He does maybe look that is the... He he may be pounding on the on the doors. He may be putting on the notice on the doors of, of the Roswell Chapel. Right. Yeah. There you go. Just, just saying out loud. Just thinking wow. out loud. Like the blob. The doors are pounding back though. Oh, is that the problem? Okay. <laughs> well, they, 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 no one's going to go quietly on this one. No. Too much money's being made. Too many um, too many uh, desires are being fulfilled. Really. Uh, in this, and we go off and we and we, we we're happy. And, <laughs> You know it when you cannot give anything but the answer people have already determined is 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 the is the result. You mm -hmm. cannot give anything different to that. Wow. Hey, well, listen. You're 100% right from my point of view. Coco. Can I stray from this a little bit? But there is a dotted line that connects Dr. Bob to one of our guests, one of the ghost sisters, Mandy and Jennifer. What do you think about this? Don't you think there's a lot of nonsense out there having to do with the paranormal and UFOs and stuff? UFOs and stuff? Depends on how you look at it, I okay. guess. All right. Depends on who the person is. There you go. Well, how about us? <laughs> <laughs> no. Depends not. on the person. Jennifer, do you agree with her? I do. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't believe in what we do. Mm -hmm. um, We're going to talk about I, what I believe in UFOs because my brother saw one growing up. Mm -hmm. When we were younger, we were kids. So he... He believed in that 100%. He passed away, but hmm. he believed in that 100% because he's seen one. Um, now, you are the ghost I, I just believe that people... I'm sorry? I'm sorry. I, you, I stepped on your... Keep on going, please. That's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> you are the ghost sisters. I was going to introduce, you know, what you do. You were saying that, you know, sometimes people don't believe in what you do, but what you go and you investigate actual incidences where ghosts were seen or ghosts were known to be there, right? Yes. Okay, super. Yes. Um, well, yeah, you're right. We go and we investigate places, and um, you know, we we do residential cases. We go to just about anywhere, and yeah, we do investigate where you know you go into a place you see something, but you know, mm -hmm. with our equipment we use, we're able to you know get a lot of voices that come through. Mm -hmm. And um, how do you know where to go? Are people tip you off that this place might be haunted or whatever? Um, yeah, a lot of, um, you know, Facebook, you see a lot of places, uh, watch a lot of the travel channel. Mm -hmm. Um, people contact us on our Facebook needing help, you know, to come investigate their homes and, right. you know, just things like that. Right. Now, Mandy, you're a uh, corrections officer, correct? Yes. 
Is it a male prison? I have to ask that question. I'm sorry. Someone asked me to ask that question. Are they guys locked up where it you is are? The, jail. What's it's, the matter? What are they doing that to guys? Guys and women. Oh, guys and women. Yeah, but what, what, what anyway. I, 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 I never pictured someone like you to look like a corrections officer. I'm sorry, and I hope I never see one. <laughs> Yikes. Kind of got out of that. Tried to. Nah, you know. this capacity. No, I'm probably not your typical looking. Right. Jennifer, what do you. but. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, but you told us before you enjoy your job or something. Do you enjoy what you do? Um. Some days, I mean, it can. It's it's getting a lot harder to deal mm-hmm. with overcrowding, right? And overcrowding. It, it's just we're growing. Yes. And they they keep adding more beds. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's the numbers are going higher and higher. Wow. So it's harder. Putting more people in jail now, Doctor Bob. You used to be a corrections officer too, right? Um, no, actually, I was teaching for Penn State. They had a degree degree program it was the huntingdon state prison in huntingdon pennsylvania so i i actually taught there you taught prisoners a A very scary that building has a really scary look to it they all look yes not that most not that most prisons don't but that one in particular has got a pretty dark look to it were were you were you teaching them music music yes really yes find any diamonds in the rough yes i was uh (laughs) so to speak yeah. uh yes there were um that, that was of all i taught at penn state for like several years mm-hmm. part-time and that was the most intelligent group of students really? i ever taught the prisoners the prisoners wow really okay. probably not a big problem to get to do homework huh no, well yeah, they, they were real big at, oh their their lectures were when they would do their presentations yes they were using a lot of profanity and really couldn't Make them stop it. Did you give everyone was, an A plus? Did everyone get an A plus in your class? Because that's what no, I do. Only the big guys. <laughs> only the big guys. Okay. So Jennifer, what do you do? What do you do for a living in your day job? I actually teach special education, really? autistic and Down syndrome children. Okay. And I've of been what? a real I've been a realtor for twelve years. A realtor. Now, so I do both. What's funny is, um, not funny, but uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, is a realtor. And um, I try to talk him into coming on. Maybe you can answer this question. Coming on and telling us if he's ever knowingly mm-hmm. sold a haunted house to somebody. Oh. And he wouldn't. He said yes, but he wouldn't come on the radio and say and talk about it. It was a notorious. We actually have to. We have to disclose that. Actually, do we really? If we're aware what? of it. Really? If, if we're aware of it, we have to disclose that. Or if there was a suicide on the property, we have to disclose that as well. Wow. I deliver it. If we're aware of it. Wow. Now, a lot of sellers won't tell you. Yes. A lot of sellers won't tell you that happened. Well, who would? So it's, it's only if it's disclosed to you. Right. Okay. So mm-hmm. it's best that Matt, they can I can throw a quick funny note in? Please do. Here at the compound, the previous owners tried to hide the family plot cemetery, which is probably <laughs> 80 feet from where I'm sitting. Right. And uh, Mrs. Cobra and I, when we did the walkthrough the day before we passed paper, she found it. Mm-hmm. And when we went to pass papers, we got everything taken care of, but I had, it had to be me. I told her that if, you had, if we had known the cemetery was there, we would have offered asking price. Really? I just yeah. had to throw that out. It's kind of funny because he bought property, and, and you kind of have to look for it, I guess. But anytime I go down and look at that, I get the creeps down there, man. That's because they're old graves, right? There's only like, what, a three or four? About that, yeah, uh, the earliest one, 1790, man. and then up to the middle of the 1800s. 
Yeah. I did a field investigation one time in an old funeral home that had people buried un- underneath it. Oh, yikes, huh? Really? What'd you find? What were they? What were they? What was the funeral director just stashing <laughs> the body somewhere? Um, no, they were, but they were <laughs> burying people underneath there. There were wow. nine people that had died in that house and three suicides in a funeral was a, home. It was an old funeral home. Well, they picked the right building then, didn't they? That's so, right up our alley, there right? You go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so if you were going to go into this funeral home, we'd be talking, all over it. What would you do? How would you go about it? You you mentioned equipment. What kind of equipment would you bring? Either one of you. What we kind have, of? Go ahead, Mandy. Go ahead, Mandy. Uh, we just have variety. Uh, we we have uh, the ink, um, which is a device that the spirits can um, use to communicate through. It's like an old boom. <laughs> Sounds like they're using Pretty it now. Um, okay. Do what? Yes. Jennifer, why don't you tell us? <laughs> okay. Well, when you're talking about the ink box, we can actually channel in on this box to um, be able to pick up their voices. Yes. There's also a direct link that you can use. When you use a direct link, you actually put your finger on the back of it and release it to hear the, the voices come through. Okay. There's an antenna. But actually, the, the spirits will actually use your energy to go through that that actual direct link. Okay. They'll be pulling your energy. Mm-hmm. So you're providing, which you have to be careful with. You've got to be careful with that so you don't um, get an attachment from that. So uh, the ghost mm-hmm. might attach. Sounds like an electronic Ouija. Yeah, or something. Yeah. A, a dating. <laughs> that was a little, little, yeah, the ink box you use by itself. So you're not really pulling the energy from yourself for that. Right. To use that. Um, we like that one a lot better. Mm-hmm. The direct thing you just got to be careful because they, they do they do pull your energy from that. So, so do they the ghosts? They do actually have to. Kind of, they have to channel, they have to channel through you. Yes. To to um to have their energy. Do they attach themselves to you? Did you? Is that what you said? You can't get rid of them. Well, we hope not. Okay. We, we hope so far so good. No, we hope not. <laughs> I, I, I can't stop. I can't stop myself from saying this. Okay, you're two very attractive women, and and, and do do ghosts hit on you? Do, have you ever had any? That's such a crazy <laughs> question. But do you know what I mean? They, they, ever... they, they actually are drawn to Mandy and I. When we go into a place together, they're always like in between us. So they for some <laughs> reason always them? stick between Mandy and I. They, our energy is what attracts them. We both have a very high energy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, we probably have a lot that flirt with us. We're just not really aware of it. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Actually, we have um, captured... Um, EVPs of, uh, we were in a speakeasy, and this is before uh, Jennifer joined the team. Okay. But there was recordings of us um, a few months back being in uh, a speakeasy, speak and we easy. had um, some of these gangsters. Yes. Actually. Oh, like, wise guys. Okay. They were hitting on you? It was, it was good. <laughs> it was good. Oh, yeah. Al Capone. We were in a speakeasy where Al Capone was hanging out. Really? At one time. Yeah. Well, hmm. more than once, but. Oh yeah! Wow, huh? Okay. Well, you travel with interesting people. Um, wow, that's I don't know how to top that. I really don't. So the best, the best. You come here often. Uh, you come here often. Who said that? Sorry. <laughs> that was good. They, these spirits do have a tendency to um, cuss a lot, depending on their energy and what type of yeah. spirit they are. We yes. we get a lot of cussing and and. 
we approach ones that are very angry and unhappy. Mm-hmm. And then we approach ones that are very nice. It just depends on the cir- circumstances, the situation, the right. place we're at. Do you ever get emotionally? So we, we really don't know what we're going to approach. Have you ever been emotionally attached to a ghost? I'll start with you, Jennifer. Have you ever been emotionally attached to a ghost? Not, not from oh, from damn. ghost hunting. No. Damn. How I about mean, you, Mandy? I, I, my, Mandy and I are a little different. Mandy's a psychic medium where she can actually do, do. She can do that through her mind, where mine's my my hands, my energy is. My tools are my hands. My energy is in my hands. So I have to actually touch something to be able to know the history of it. But I can actually touch things and be able to feel wow. the person or the experience. Wow. And the energy. She she can feel the energy. How come I have none of this? And so, so Mandy, I'll ask you, <laughs> as a ghost of a, you know, have you ever been emotionally attached to a ghost, you? Uh, <laughs> I didn't say, you know, emotionally attached, but, but we have investigated places over again, and I, I like to communicate with the same spirits when we would go uh-huh. to the same place over again. Really? You know, because, uh-huh. you know, they're a lot of fun to talk to. Yep. Yeah. Kind of a spiritual hookup, an ethereal hookup. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. These we things just have, pop into I my head. However, have one time, a gangster did tell me he said, um, "I'm single, ladies. Oh, I'm not wow. wearing. He's, I'm not wearing a ring. Oh, <laughs> it's good to know that you don't lose it. You don't lose it after you go over the other side. You're still, you know, huh? Good for you, and <laughs> <No. clears throat> interesting. Do you ever get scared? Do you ever get scared going into these places, girls, uh, ladies? Do you ever get scared? Because I'd be scared. Uh, I have only when I do isolations, it, it's pretty scary because I'll go in some really dark and scary places. <laughs> really? By yourself? That's what isolation yeah. means? I don't know about Jennifer. Wow. That I would. Yeah. Not. When you when isolation is when you go into a place by yourself. Wow. And you're alone. Why? 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 And what does that, what's the benefit of that? The ghosts are more apt to just talk. Well, you get more communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like they're um, they're going to be drawn to you more, and you know you're using your senses when no one else is around. You know you have you might have some devices, or you might sit alone with just a recorder, or however you choose you know to do it. But right. you're able to basically open up all five of your sense your senses. Hey Coco, did you ever see a and ghost? You can actually get more. Coco, did you ever see a ghost? Go. Oh, I've had a couple of things that have. Uh, Made a presence known to me. Really, I've never seen the uh, the visual apparition. I'd like to. Mm-hmm. Have you, Doctor Bob, ever seen a ghost? Yes, uh, vaporous apparitions, but mostly poltergeist type of activity. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow! Whoa! Switch, Not good. Switchy. <laughs> yeah. I have to ask Switchy. Switch, have you seen a ghost? No, but like like Cobra, I. Uh, was out in the TNT area that yes. one night uh, where the Mothman was supposed to lurk. And oh, I yeah. came back to the uh, motel I was staying in and the TV set turned on by itself and started flipping continuously through channels. Yes. So uh, 
I'm not sure how to process that, but it, things like that never happened to me, so I yeah. it got my attention. Yeah. Weren't you charged with porno movies on your hotel bill, and that's the story you came up with? Well, yeah. the channels were flipping so fast, I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't tell, tell which uh, which okay. film it was. That's great. That's your defense. Uh, that's good. I had the same thing happen to me in New Mexico. Really? Same exactly thing. It was the TV was unplugged. Oh, mine was at least plugged. I could unplug <laughs> it and go to bed. You have to pay for those movies if the TV's unplugged. Really? Holy uh, cow. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's fine. So, girls, I mean, ladies, do you charge for what you do? Do you charge? No. The ghost sisters we're talking to. No, you just go in as volunteers, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. Where's your flyover? Are you there, Jennifer? Yeah. I'm here. She's there. She's fascinated. <laughs> you were kind of cutting in out a little bit. I, I couldn't mm. hear everything you said. And, and what do your families think about it? Now, I know, Mandy, you're married, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. What's your husband think about this? He, yes. What's your husband think about this? Oh, he he loves what I do. Um, he's actually been on investigations with me because uh, he's a lieutenant where I work. Okay. So sometimes when we go to these places, I like to take him. You yes. Know, okay. The spirits are drawn to him too. Him being a lieutenant, if we go to anywhere, jails or um, prisons. Yes. You know, um, I do take him along on some. Right. Now, the last, the last time you were on, either you or the, the, the other sister who was with you told us a story. How you, uh, you saw a ghost or she saw a ghost and the husband pushed her out of the way and ran away or something like that. Was your story or was Cassidy's story? Or did I dream that? Um. I, I don't remember. Okay. Must, have, must have dreamed <laughs> you it You might then. have dreamed it. Oh, but it sounds good. I can't remember. But... Uh, we have seen some things out there, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and Jennifer, we've I, actually got video. Really? Yeah. Of what? What's on the video? Uh, we've captured um, a dark shadow figure that just rose from the ground. Wow! It had actually followed me out of the room, mm -hmm. felt it run up on me, and we had a video camera set up in the room. It was at Middle Point School, hmm. and uh, it was in the creepy crawler room. I actually okay. felt this thing Good rush title. up behind, and at the same time, they were calling me on the radio, telling me that they'd just seen this thing, and I was actually just saying that something just rushed up on me. Wow. So we captured a dark shadow figure rising from the ground, and you can see it really good. Yikes. It's creepy. Is it on YouTube? Um, there's another one. Is it on YouTube? Oh, we, we actually caught another at a uh, the Rhodes Hotel. Hmm. And this is an apparition, and it almost looks like it's a headless apparition wow. walking through. Yikes. I mean, you can see this thing. And we were we tried to debunk it. We could not debunk it. We um, tried over and over. I mean, it's all on our Facebook. On Facebook? Okay. Was it Ghost Sisters? We ran into some cool stuff. Just go to Ghost Sisters on Facebook yeah. and everything? You can find all that on Ghost Sisters. Yeah. Cool. So Jen All social media. Oh. Jennifer, are you, if I may ask, are you married or have a boyfriend or an SO? No, I've never have been. So, so, never how's, have been. How's your family feel about it? How's your friends feel about it? Did they ever, did they think you're a free spirit? Well, you know, when you, when you work at a school, you're going to have people that look at this a little differently. Yep. Okay. Um, <laughs> real estate's a different story. No one yes. really cares. But okay. at school, I have people that, you know, they're not really sure about what I do. Right. Um, then a lot, I have a lot of people come up to me and tell me their story. You know, hey, this happened to me years ago, and 
And uh, let me tell you what I've seen or what I, you know, what I had in my house and things like that. But um, my family's fine with it. And mm-hmm. do you? My daughter loves to go and and do that. Oh, in 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 this is what I would always think is that you'd be involved in these things, and then the next time you go to sleep, or the next time you wake up in the middle of the night, and you think about what you just did, that would just that would affect me. I don't. I think I'd have a hard time going back to sleep. Is that just me? Well, it's really hard. It's really hard when you have five of them in your house. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> I only have I only have one now. Okay. I just had a friend of mine help me remove uh, four oh. of them last week. Really? So, so I have a little Indian girl that's in my house, <laughs> and she stays in my house. I'm, I'm going to let her stay. She's okay. Damn, we only got four minutes left. We could go <laughs> for two hours about this, I can tell. Wow, that's crazy, huh? So so it doesn't <laughs> – here I am talking about how scared I am in the bed, and she has five of them in her house. So, so it doesn't, so it doesn't, it doesn't bother you. Crawl in my bed. Let me tell you. Wait a minute. Hold on. My bed. We're going to extend she has the show. More than I do. We're going to we're going to cut out the first portion. So, did you just say that they crawl in bed with you? Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Doctor Bob. Crawling in my bedroom. Wow. Oh yeah. Oh really? Tell us, please. It's scary. Is it okay? <laughs> Share with us. Share. <laughs> well, remember we were telling you about the shrine? Yeah. Do you remember the shrine we were telling you oh, about yes. in Tennessee? Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, after we came back from there, I was hearing growling in my house. Oh. And it was like three times I heard growling. Oh. And in my bedroom, I heard the growling. And so I decided to sage my house. And I, I ticked it off. And I heard it growling throughout the night, you know, a couple times. Okay. And I it yeah, I would feel me. You, I would feel something like right next to me, and you would hear the growl in the bed. It's it's pretty intense. Wow. But everything's calmed down though since I've saged. Well, if that happened to me too, I'd have trouble getting back to sleep. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Shrine's a different experience. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, we have to we have to do this again soon. Ladies, okay, because we're running out of time, and we should have devoted the entire two hours instead of talking fancy dancy about UFOs. We should have just gone the one fifteen minutes with you. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for joining us, Ghost Sisters. We well, appreciate. It. We appreciate you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And um, thank good you luck. Guys. Good luck, and we'll be in touch. Wasn't Switch going to go on a ghost hunt with you or something? What happened there, Switchy? You said something about they uh, yeah. gone far, far away. But if, if they do something, uh, you know, that's uh, in Ohio, sure. Okay. I, just a hop, skip, and a jump. There you go. Up in South Central Michigan. Switchy's people will be in touch. We do a lot in Ohio. There you go. But if they're going to send mm-hmm. them home with me, I don't know. <laughs> hey, you, you got to tell that. them not to follow you. Yeah, there you go. They'd There's all... no guarantees, though. If I wear aluminum foil, does that help? <laughs> They'd all crowd in your lease car there, Switchy. The five that were in my house, the five, the, the five that were in my house were yeah. not followed home with me. They were actually in my house from living here. You bought my house a, is 1937. You bought it was house. in it was a Native American Indian. There was a camp in my backyard. Wow! And so the little girl came from there. There's Indians in my backyard. The other four were actually previous owners. Interesting. Shoo, man, I had a mole in my house once. That was scary enough. A mole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow. Okay, switching. So why don't we do this? Why don't we end the show? Thank you very much. Uh, and I hope everyone just stays put for a second while I do the plugs. Coco, you're going to have to help me. Um, the Peoples, People, 
the People's Mosquito Project, Ross Shop, a good friend, he and his group are putting together, putting back together a war plane from World War II, made of wood, two Rolls-Royce engines, fastest thing in the sky for a long time. The People's Mosquito Project, just Google it. Also, Homes for Our Troops, which is our favorite military-related charity. What they do is they build homes for um, people who were wounded in the Afghan and the Iraqi wars, and they just give them the keys. No more, no mortgage, nothing. And they build the houses to, like if, the, if they're in a wheelchair, if they have trouble going up and downstairs, they build in these modifications to make life a little easier for them, plus no mortgage. They're the best. Homes for our troops. Just Google them. Uh, also, uh, Sweetwater's Sweetwater Donut Mill in Battle Creek, Michigan, official donut shop from the Macaloni Show. I can't believe it. Uh, go um, visit them. Switch is going to be doing a special from there soon. Also, Java Head Java. No, what is Military it? Java Group. No, but what's the easy Military one? Java. Military. I thought it was Java. No, that's the easy one. Military Java Group. Java Head Java. No. Okay. Military. Say it again. No. Uh, Military Java Group dot com. Right. And the Jarhead uh, blend is the uh, one for the Marine Corps. They okay. have stars and stripes. Right. Uh, the official he has coffee one for all the services. The official coffee of the Mac Maloney Military Axolotl. But half the half the proceeds. Go with the donuts. Go to the veterans. You know, so that's good. Um, let's see <laughs> what else. Uh, uh, we're now a podcast, and we're heard on twenty six different podcast platforms, as it turns out, including. Apple Podcasts. So just go to Google, type in Mac Maloney's Military X-Files Podcast, and you'll find places to listen to us. And uh, so thank you. Thank you to uh, Gary Olson, famous Hollywood writer, for joining us earlier. Also, Lois Lane for doing the Top Ten uh, Countdown. Uh, Dr. Bob, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Oh, Can you play us you. out? Next time you're on, will you be able to play us on and play us out with, on your sax or your synth sax? I'll give it a try. Okay, super duper. That's all we need. Okay, now we have to pay union dues. Is it? Is there gonna be a union involved? Yes, yes, okay. yes. The Pittsburgh Union. They go. Oh, they're tough. Make them the official uh, yeah, musician really. of the show, and we'll have to pay them. Okay, all right. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> we won't have to pay them. Thank you, Switchy, for joining us. His staff. Switchy. It was my pleasure. Okay. Frosted Flakes, the spawning kids. Frosted Flakes, pudding, and then a huge omelet. That was Switchy's dad. <laughs> Thank you, Coco, for joining us as always. Thank you, Ghost Sisters. It's always a privilege. Thank you, Mac. Ghost Sisters, thank you. And thank you, everyone out there listening. And until the next time you hear us, this is Mac Maloney for the entire gang saying, be safe, be happy, and bye-bye. UFO sightings reported around the world every month. 90% of these sightings can be explained, but 10% cannot. Officially and unofficially, the U.S. military has been investigating UFOs since 1947. Their top secret goal is to find out what's behind these unexplained sightings. The Pentagon classifies them as unusual airborne anomalies. But a better term is X-Files. 
Join us as we explore these unsolved cases, UFO incidents that baffle even the U.S. military. This is Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. And now, here's Mac Maloney. Well, welcome to a very special edition of Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. This is Commander Cobra speaking for Mac Maloney and the gang. Let me read to you after I open the sealed orders that Mac has sent to me regarding what is going on tonight. With me is Steve Switchblade Ward, and the orders read as such. CC, switch. Break off, main formation. JJ and I are on a secret mission. Complete show. Try not to break anything too expensive. Mac sends. Switch. Yes. You have any uh, any uh, illumination, any more background of what's going on here with the secret mission and what, what happened? You know, we show up to do the show. He's not here. JJ's not here. It's just you and I. Any, well, uh, it, any word? It, it, as you alluded to, uh, it, it doesn't it, – at this point, it doesn't seem like Mac's show because usually it's, what, 20 or 30 minutes in just to do the intro. So yes. that, was, yes. uh, well, that was a bit well, appreciated. But let us play proper – honors to okay. the Mac Maloney uh, methodology here. And first of all, Commander Cobra talking to you from the compound, which uh, used to be considered a bunker, but for tax purposes, I have changed it over to a compound in the uh, great state of Maine and the Northern Territories of New England. I'm speaking with Steve Switchblade Ward, longtime uh, known as the national correspondent for this show, an investigative reporter and author in his own right in the paranormal world, a uh, military veteran. And of course, Steve, let's knock it out of the park early for those that want to, uh, to know what did you have in preparation in the culinary arts for tonight? I had three pieces of bacon, one scrambled egg with shredded cheese, and two pieces of toast. Buttered. What with type of toast? Hot black coffee. What type of toast? Uh, what type of bread? You mean? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. It was. Uh, I think it's some kind of like wheat bread or something like that. Mm. You know, Excellent. I don't. I don't pay much attention. It's bread. You know. Bread. Okay. Well, you're not a uh, not a connoisseur in the uh, the various breads. I, I, I'm for not a connoisseur our, at all. For our guests that are waiting to come on air, I'm sure that there is in the virtual green room some snickering going on with this discussion. And maybe we at some point can explain to them uh, the importance of getting that piece of information out onto the airways early on. Folks, we're very fortunate tonight to have uh, uh, one guest that you know very well because he, he appears on Mac Maloney's Military X Files frequently and is a very, very good friend of uh, all of us and on the show. But uh, two of the people that you do kind of know about in using Mac's words, as you have often heard us speak, especially when Mac talks about it in very loving terms, he refers to Ross Sharp and those mad Englishmen that are rebuilding a UK, in the UK, a fighter bomber that is known as the Mosquito. And we have talked about this in the past, uh, and we have had updates on in the past. But tonight, we're very fortunate to have two key members of the uh, the leadership and good friends of mine as well uh, to come speak to us. So let me get down the roll call here so that we can get this thing into the air and start uh, doing the, uh, the formation routine. John Lilly he is the directing manager, chairman 
of the People's Mosquito. John, good evening and welcome to McMullen's Military X-File. Oh, good evening. And how are you? Excellent, sir. It is wonderful to have you here. And it's been a while since we've chatted on air to talk about TPM uh, yep. and all the great things that are going on. Also with us is Wing Commander Bill Ramsey. Uh, Bill is the Director of Operations. He is uh, one of the most distinguished pilots I know of and has an incredible flight resume, which includes uh, tours in the Vulcan bomber, flying fast jets, as it's referred to in the RAF, and he was a leader of the Red Arrows. Bill, good evening and welcome to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. Good evening, everybody. Thanks very much for having me along. Uh, by the way, in preparation, uh, I also uh, had a, a pre-flight meal of bacon and coffee. Oh, excellent. Well, and now, uh, we're practically related at this point. See, we're showing that the uh, cousins in the colony are uh, doing very well. And I should note that uh, um, Bill and uh, John obviously are coming to us from the UK. And Ross is uh, in another part of New, uh, New England. He's in Massachusetts. And we'll be talking to him in a second. And I omitted to uh, bring up the fact that Switch is up there in the great state of Michigan in the Battle Creek uh, area of Michigan, the uh, land of flakes, as uh, Mac likes to say. That's With right, that uh, said, go ahead. I'm sorry, Bill. In, in the summertime, we have to keep our windows shut because the snap, crackle, pop is so loud. Yeah, well, especially after something like rain. You know, you have to be very cautious about that. Absolutely. <laughs> Ross. Shark, yes, the director of engineering for TPM, longtime command presence here at Mac, Mac Maloney's Military X Files. Good evening, sir, and welcome, and thank you so much. Thank you very much, Commander. And in full culinary disclosure mode, <laughs> I too had a pre flight meal. There were three fried eggs oh. and some baked beans. You will note that no bacon was harmed during the making of that culinary exercise. Well, we'll know that Zeppelin will be very, very happy to hear that. And for <laughs> John and Bill, that Zeppelin is the new addition to the uh, to the Commander Cobra squadron here. And uh, he is my baby pig uh, that has been with us now for four months. No comment. I noticed the, uh, the very talk about the ham. The very classy silence as they are. Just be careful. Don't get Ross Sharp talking about gerbils. <laughs> oh, yes, gerbil and chips. <laughs> That's an in-joke, gentlemen. Yes, it sounds yeah, like you know, maybe we'll have a chance to get to it. Well, one thing I do want to, before we dive into uh, the show proper here, is that I wanted to bring up the fact that uh, at the time that we're doing the show is very close to the uh, to the passing and internment of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Uh, to me, one I think one of the classiest folks that uh, great warrior, as far as I'm concerned, outstanding uh, husband and father from everything that I know. No, no details beyond what I had seen, but uh, talk about a member of the greatest generation, someone who uh, who uh, walked it and talked it, as we would say here in the colonies, um, very, very clearly. And he uh, he never really grabbed a lot of fanfare, but he had, and to me, incredibly important impact. Uh, to everything uh, that uh, to his people into the uh, into the crown. So I, I really wanted to just take a note in, in honoring uh, the fact that I have uh, three members, uh, uh, three subjects. I would believe is the proper way to say it, and uh, I want to get that note. Thanks, Commander. That's uh, that that's uh, uh, really kind. You, you you're right, Prince Philip. Uh, I, I think played a role uh, in our monarchy. 
which is maybe not understood, but he, you know, in the end, he was a father and a husband to our queen. So he was behind her, yeah, all the way for all those years. So, and a tremendous guy in his own right. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I'm just, I stagger when you find out some of the details of things that he did in combat operations and then uh, in his service uh, as a, uh, as a member of the Royal family. And I think, uh, a textbook way of executing uh, the uh, the responsibilities and role in a very complex world. I think he's just was that kind of uh, that kind of guy. I think, Commander, one of the unsung episodes uh, of his naval career was when he literally saved the ship, HMS Wallace, uh, when he was uh, first lieutenant uh, XO in U.S. naval terms. Um, was off Sicily and was being bombed at night by a series of uh, German aircraft, I think JU-88s, and there have been several near misses, and, and obviously the, the, the ship was about to be hit for six. And uh, prior to the last run, um, uh, Prince Philip and the captain worked something out, and they quickly assembled a wooden... Uh, raft on deck with a couple of smoke floats at either end and threw it overboard. And when it hit the water, the smoke floats ignited and sputtered and gave off flames and masses of smoke. And the ship sprinted away from that and then went dead in the water. And lo and behold, the JOHA came back and bombed the raft. And uh, it was said afterwards that undoubtedly his quick, the uh, Prince Philip's quick thinking and actions uh, save the ship and those on board. A tremendous story, and it doesn't surprise me in the least that it's attributed yeah. to to him. It, it, just the, the ways that people have spoke about him and service with him, and I, I'm going to extend that to the rest of his to his son and to his grandsons. Their time in the military, um, a few people over the years that I have met that had served uh, with them. Uh, spoke the same way. So he obviously made sure that that was instilled in them when they put the uniform on. So tremendous. Switching slightly off gear here and into it, uh, John, a lot of people don't know much beyond the Mad Englishman um, <coughs> moniker that has been placed in you by uh, Mac, uh, <laughs> that uh, what exactly we're doing with this mosquito project. I mean, we, there's a there's a million stories behind what is going on with this. Uh, this project. And it, to me, it just, it absolutely is uh, joyful to me that the, the kinds of people that are getting involved, but you have a unique, uh, you, you are the reason that we're all together working so hard on this and have, and have had the success to date. If you're a, a short intro to the folks, what drove you to do this and how you sent off the first Twitter message and, and what, what happened with that little spark? <clears throat> well, I guess it follows on from, talking about His Royal Highness Prince Philip. And I guess, I, I hope, well, I hope, and I speak for myself, but I, I do know it because I, I see it in my colleagues in Ross and, and Bill and all the guys involved in the team. We have this British spirit of that we will, we will get something done. You know, we will achieve, we will endure, you know. And we, and I guess there's a spirit as well that comes out of the Royal Air Force, which Bill could probably talk to, is that, particularly about the Mosquito aircraft itself when it, when it was operated, is, you know, um, when people say it's impossible, we have this attitude, well, give me 24 hours and I'll deliver it. So we don't accept things are impossible. And, you know, that, 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 that's something I've been brought up with in, from, from my forefather, also served in the military in the British Army. 
uh, as well, and also my relatives that served in the armed forces in World War Two. And, you know, again, that story that Ross has eloquently talked about there, where the Prince is quick thinking, he didn't accept their fate. He didn't accept it. So that's, that has been part of my guiding principle. In, and I guess it's a bit of a psyche, that, uh, you know, not just me, but also obviously you guys as well over there in the United States. We don't accept we can't get things done. There is an answer. We, don't, we might not know it today, but we'll find it out tomorrow. And it's that spirit of never giving up, isn't it, I think. So that drove me. And, and also as well, what drove me was that this aircraft, when we come, come back to it, was became uh, the first multi-role combat aircraft. And these are sort of terms that, you know, you, Commander, will, will know about when people talk about things like the F-18 Hornet, you know, uh, F-16, our Tornado uh, aircraft jet uh, fighter, fighter bomber, which Bill flew. The Mosquito, you know, wasn't designed that way, but it, it, it nurtured in that way as well. And it was also using ingenuity of, of engineering, something, again, Prince Philip drove. And one of the things that Nora is, he really got behind engineering and innovation. And the fact there was a quote tonight in British television, he said, if God did not invent it, then an engineer did. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and I, that stuck with me tonight before we came on the show because I think it, we all can appreciate that one. Um, so that, that, that was my driving force. And, and, that, and also because this aircraft, apart from being, you know, the odd static ones in, um, in museums, and we do have, there are many of them around the world, not many, I think you could count them on one hand, but the, you know, until recently, there were no flying examples in the world, and there certainly aren't any flying today. That, one of my beliefs is that the way that you can demonstrate, remember our forefathers, you know, um, is to build something and, and get it operational. And that tells the story. But it's also is a story of innovation, which, you know, I can spend an old, and Ross will tell you, you can spend an old two hours about, you know, mm airplanes and, and uh, radio frequency, which we now call microwave technology, you know, and the fact that this plane was flying electronic countermeasure operations, all these things that we kind of thought about, you know, in recent wars and stuff like that. But again, it's also to inspire young people as well and, and young engineers and young people into aviation. So with that, um, I decided to do something about this missing gap in our history. There you go. Beautiful. And I, you know, you were doing some volunteer work um, with the uh, with the aircraft and, and with restoring aircraft. You sent out that yes. Twitter request, and you had overwhelming response. People just reacted to it. And I think that the Mosquito is just a very unique airplane that embodies that. Um, and I've spoken about this with Ross a number of times to take advantage of a number of of uh, incredible skill sets that were there in Britain yes. at the time of World War II to you to take advantage. Um, we say composite uh, composite is how uh, Ross uh, has been instructing me to say it, but to build <laughs> the a that, to take advantage of materials that were there to make such a effective aircraft is amazing. Absolutely. 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 Amazing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, the thinking of the day was turning to aluminium monocoque style fighter aircraft. Absolutely. And bombers at the beginning of World War Two were to yeah, we're predominantly all twin engines. Um, 
armed, ours were only armed with three or three machine guns, which I think uh, you Americans affectionately called us pop guns, right. compared to 50 calibers and stuff. And yeah, they were expected to fly, you know, uh, unescorted, fighter escorts were not really heard of at the beginning, flying, doing daylight operations, but, um, and, and, and basically come back. But what, what de Havilland did, or Jeffrey de Havilland, the owner, and, and, and basically the guiding light around the, the, the company, saw that he had a vision of a light, unarmed bomber, but made from wood, which was completely against the conventional thinking. And almost you can almost hear people at the time going, you know, is he mad? Are they mad? Sort of thing. Um, but you're right, it, it was able then to bring in a whole new workforce of... You know, as as Hermann Goering famously said, look at the British. They they make a fantastic aeroplane out of wood using piano makers, cabinet makers. And what can you nincompoops do in Germany? Nothing. You know, so if it gets the envy of one of the leading Nazis at the time, who was an evil guy, you know, then, and that's great. So, yeah, this design was different thinking, different skill sets of people, bringing them in. But also it allowed the aircraft to be built in modular form, not in one place. You, right. they, yes, they had assembly factories around the country, but you, suddenly you could outsource this to different parts of the UK. And that is so difficult for an enemy to keep striking against, isn't it? You could keep moving that production around, you know, uh, as very tactical as well. And there's a story, I mean, the aircraft nearly did not get into service. And there's a whole story behind that. But, yes, I put, a, I put a tweet out, and I was also influenced by an aircraft that Bill will talk about later, which is the uh, Avro Vulcan, the Cold War 1950s, 60s nuclear bomber. And a UK team had raised money to take basically a retired RAF bomber, just recently retired out of service, and uh, basically get it registered on the civilian registration for display purposes. And they'd done that by raising money from the public. But there's also a legacy from World War II. Um, during the dark days of World War II, everybody needed money. And I know that this happened in the United States called war bomb tours. Well, we had things like Spitfire funds, for example, and mosquito right. funds, where basically people were encouraged to donate a few dollars or a few shillings, in this case in England, a few pounds, you know, whether it was individuals or businesses or even communities and even Commonwealth islands out there, basically donate, raise money to build, you know, for the war effort. And that happened all over the world, including the United States. So with that principle and with the fact that the Vulcan to the Sky team had done this and they'd raised 25, 26 million pounds to get a complex V-jet bomber, I thought to myself, I'm going to do the impossible. And I put out a tweet around about um, winter 2012. And, yeah, I've got about 45 guys coming back saying, I'm on board. Let's go. And the rest, they say, is history. And we'll, we'll, we'll bring the history up to speed here. Uh, as we're coming up towards our first break, I want to bring Bill in. Bill, you represent, I think, probably the most important um, viewpoint that I want to get tonight. Uh, and, that, and that viewpoint is... You are a, a career RAF officer, aviator, and explain to me what something like the mosquito means to the uh, to the history and to the understanding of what uh, 
we have embodiments in the American Air Force of of what bombers and fighters mean. Uh, we have legendary uh, uh, people that uh, have risen up, uh, you know, at different times. To me, the mosquito seems to have a, an incredibly strong presence in the RAF, but not uh, not highly visible, not highly uh, celebrated. Am I am I right or wrong? Uh, yes, I think you you make a fair point. Um, the I mean, to put it in what we call, yeah, the, the pantheon of great uh, British Merlin engine airplanes, everybody knows the Spitfire, everybody knows the Hurricane, uh, everybody knows the Lancaster, so single-engine Merlin, four-engine Merlin. Uh, the Mosquito was a twin-engine uh, Merlin airplane, so it sits between them. It was, uh, there was some seven and a half thousand of them made, I think. Russell put me right if I'm wrong there. Uh they weren't. They, they were... Uh, 7, I, I just knew he'd put me right. <laughs> they, um, they were essentially designed as throwaway airplanes, disposable airplanes, which, um, actually, just to fast forward, because I'm sure you guys follow the technology, the, you know, the loyal wingman programme that I know you guys are into, and so are we, are disposable airplanes, aren't they? Yeah. I'm sure uh, they'll be around for 40 years. Anytime you put disposable, I've flown two disposable, quote-unquote, airplanes uh, in my career, and when I got them, they were over 20 years old. So uh, yeah. a lot of times those disposable airplanes uh, tend to hang around. But but that was it. I mean, I, I mean, uh, John's kind of covered the, the, the basic principle of the, uh, the uh, using different materials and using uh, innovative technology, but, but the top thing was it was supposed to be faster, quicker, higher, and higher, than the opposition so it, it was not going to need guns because it was going to be too fast and of yes. course for much of the war it could outrun any fighter on either the, the, the german side the axis side or indeed our own uh, it was only with the advent of uh i think probably the very late model fw 190s but the, the jet fighters right uh, the messerschmitt the 262s that any, anything could catch the mosquito uh and of course, the Mosquito, like all all great great airplanes, was developed out of all recognition from yeah, first flight to the end of the war. So Bill, let me. Yeah. Add, oh, sorry, sorry, Bill. I'm going to interrupt you because I want to ask you one thing because I think you're you're up against the edge of of the point I'm trying to make. Though, to me, there's something very um, direct in the relationship of what the Mosquito means as an aircraft that went to combat, how it came out at some of the darkest uh, times. Uh, showing the greatest spirit of everything, engineering, uh, all uh, just the enthusiasm and talent. And to me, it's it's almost a nearly perfect embodiment of what the RAF in World War II was. I mean, carrying on a fight that most figured you could not, you weren't going to win, and to come out of that, and to come out of that with a with a punch. And we'll talk, hopefully, in the next half a little bit about some of the, I think, absolutely spectacular missions that the Mosquito pulled off. I know I've mentioned a number of them over the years on uh, Mac's show here uh, that, that captures. But am I right in saying that uh, that this aircraft, because of just what it embodied, does capture what you would call the spirit of the Royal Air Force? Because to me, as an outsider, it sure does. Oh, oh for, for me... You know, when I got involved, and I don't know how I did exactly because I wasn't really a Twitter person, but I heard about it and I knew that I had to support this this uh, effort. Uh, but whenever you talk to any any military or ex-military pilot in the 
from uh, the UK and you say, which airplane do you really think we should get flying again? You will always, always get the answer, the Mosquito. Uh, and, and that's kind of, I mean, it's, um, I, I don't know, I, I'm nicking this from a member of the opposition. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Adolf Gallant, really famous German. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, yeah. He was his famous quote was yeah, only the spirit of attack born in a brave heart will bring success. And and maybe that you could say that about the guys who flew the mosquito as well. I I think it I think it's absolutely fitting, and I think that's correct. Ross, Sir yeah. Ross, explain how you were pulled into this universe, and then you oh. can always and in ten seconds we can talk. You met me at an air show and you had me signed up. I was practically signed up on the tarmac as we were talking. You were. Um, but we'll go into that another time. Now, seriously, I, I was blessed, that's the only adequate way of describing it, uh, for a number of years to be involved uh, with the Royal Air Force's largest uh, air show event, uh, the uh, Battle of Britain at Home Days. And the first time I actually saw Bill Ramsey fly was at one of those events, and he was flying X-Ray Hotel 558, the, Vul the Avro Vulcan, and I thought, my God, that guy's smooth. And uh, anyway, I met him a few years later, and, and my reaction was, my God, that guy's smooth. <laughs> uh, but, but no, seriously, it's, um, I, I was inspired by what the, the tweet that John wrote. And uh, I, I wrote to him and I said, look, if you haven't got a, a tame engineer on tap, um, you know, this is what I've done, this is the resume, uh, let me in, please, you know, I beg you, this has got to be done. And uh, everybody, every single member of the board, um, uh, everyone that's been involved from, from our director of finance, uh, Alan, uh, to Steve, our marvellous uh, marketing slash IT slash Mr. Everything guy, uh, <laughs> to Mark, uh, the trading company, and so on and so forth, um, everybody without exception, uh, is inspired, is driven by this vision of getting that mosquito back in the air for Britain. It's, it's part of what we are, simple as that. Well, I think that that's probably one of the most eloquent ways it can be stated. To me, I am taken, obviously, when you are a geek like I am for these particular things and absolutely love the mosquito and have had a, uh, an affinity for it, even as a small guy, uh, we had a famous uh, television program that would come over on PBS from Britain, the War at World. Oh, excuse me, the World at War, not the uh, not the H.G. Wells uh, special. Um, we, of course, though another British import that had uh, interesting effect here as well. I should note on the side, they had a small section in there talking about the mosquito, and it 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 locked on for me because I was just I was just taken by the fact that you could create something that fast, that capable. And then as the years have gone by and I've learned the different roles and missions, I can't think of another aircraft that I know of that could possibly have covered all the missions that it did as a bomber, as an interceptor, uh, doing night uh, work with radar, to be a fighter bomber, um, to do uh, wa uh, over open water work for, uh, for uh, sea denial and, and naval support. To be an airliner, I mean, uh, it was working as a, a British uh, Overseas Airways airliner uh, to provide uh, an incredibly important piece of, uh, of uh, 
diplomacy as well as uh, capability with the neutral countries. It's just it, phenomenal to me. And it, and it soldiered on, flew on for a number of years afterwards. If I may come in there, Commander, you talked about its design and inception. So kind of when they got the go-ahead for the first kind of like, you know, first small contract for a bomber stroke recon. You know, the idea was around in the late 30s, but the real get-go, you know, the real sort of like, you know, here's the approval, one year to first flight, one right. year. And we, and we just celebrate that here in the United States with the NGAD, uh, a very uh, secretive program that we have, the Next Generation uh, Air Defense Fighter, that is... Uh, uh, they went doing this, and to me, it seems to emulate what uh, de Havilland did with the lack of de Havilland not having computers and math lab and all the other fantastic things that we're doing, but they created that uh, in a similar way. Uh, to me, just an amazing, uh, amazing aircraft all around, and I think that's what draws people to it, and we're getting up against our first break here, so let me just run down the list of who's with us tonight. Uh, John Lilly, Bill Ramsey. Retired wing commander from the Royal Air Force, Ross Sharp. Uh, I practically has a chair here in the Macmillan Military X-Files. And my wingman tonight, or my wingman to him, is Steve Switchbade Ward. We are on a special edition of Macmillan's Military X-Files. Mac and Wanwan and the rest of the gang are off on a secret mission that we have not been told many details to. So that should be an exciting uh debrief when we all get together to compare notes on how uh, our operations went. Please stand by. We'll be back in a couple of seconds. Do you know where the world's most secret bases are located? Do you know what spooky action at a distance means? Is there a conspiracy by aliens to prevent us from conquering space? And where is the best place in the United States to see a real UFO? Find the answers to all these questions and more in Mac Maloney's new book, Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe. Visit places you never knew existed, the Hampton Tunnels of Tokyo, the UFO Trail in South America, Ong's Hat, and the very mysterious M Triangle. Mac Maloney Haunted Universe contains hundreds of reports on ghosts, haunted planes and ships, weird celebrity deaths, mysterious sounds, and a breakdown of every monster in America, state by state. You've heard him talk about it on the radio. Now get all of Mac's paranormal research in one large volume. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe, with a forward by the very famous Juan Juan. On sale now in your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Hello, this is Commander Cobra of Task Force Griffin, KGR Radio, KGRRadio.com. And I need you to be a member like myself of the People's Mosquito and help rebuild and fly this great aircraft. I have three friends here today also who are going to ask you the same thing. Consider becoming a member of the People's Mosquito. Hello, I'm John Lilly. I'm the Managing Director of the People's Mosquito. And I'd like you to donate or support our flying program. Hi, I'm Ross Sharp. I'm the Director of Engineering of the People's Mosquito, and I'd like you to help us rebuild this magnificent aircraft. Hi, I'm Bill Ramsey. I'm the Operations Director and Tame Pilot of the People's Mosquito. I need you to join us and become my wingman. Join all of us and be a supporter of the People's Mosquito Program. Thanks. 
I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the, the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I had to drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit hfotusa.org. UFOs are found in Renaissance art, on ancient coins, and etched on cave walls. They are even reported in the Bible. But more surprising is when UFOs are seen the most in times of war. Through centuries, thousands of UFO sightings have been made by high-ranking officials, military pilots, and ordinary soldiers. Often, these fantastic appearances occur at the height of great battles. From World War I to D-Day to Korea, Vietnam, and beyond, military investigators are baffled. Why do UFO sightings spike so drastically during wartime? Could it be mistaken aircraft? Or is someone or something looking in on us? In UFOs in wartime, what they didn't want you to know, Mac Maloney chronicles centuries of these incredible sightings and tries to solve the puzzle of why so many UFOs are seen while humanity is at war. Read about the scare ships, the ghost planes, and the ghost rockets, alien giants in the jungles of Vietnam, UFOs controlling our ICBM bases, dogfights with flying saucers during the Gulf War, and more. 300 pages of unbelievable stories, along with many startling photographs. That's UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know, by Mac Maloney. On sale at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Welcome back to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files, a very special edition of Military X-Files tonight because Mac and JJ are away, which is probably crushing a great deal of the audience. Hopefully our numbers won't be too low, Switch. But with me tonight, (laughs) Switch is with me tonight, coming up to us from Michigan. We already have talked about the culinary uh, impact, but I think it's an important point that I wanted to bring up. I have a... I, all I had for preparation for the show tonight, in honor of the, uh, in part of the honor with the folks and partially my heritage growing up, is I had a large cup of tea um, coming in for the show. So I think it's pretty appropriate. And uh, I know that uh, later on, Bill will probably make a remark that I'm making up for, oh, small indiscretion in the 1700s where a bunch of countrymen threw some uh, tea overboard in Boston where I'm originally from and uh, kicked off a little fuss or two that we had going on back then. But I have a very special uh, note for everybody, and most of the folks on, uh, well, in, on the U.S. side of the show know uh, of this. Uh, Switch uh, departed here this summer with uh, a large liter container of it. Parnon Estates is an olive oil that's being imported uh, by a very good friend of mine in from Greece, 
from his family into the States. And it is phenomenal. Absolutely some of the best that I've ever had. And I'm trying to give them a quick little plug uh, for folks to take a look at. It's P-A-R-N-O-N-E-S-T-A-T-E-S dot com, Parnon Estates. They have uh, phenomenal products there. The olive oil, which is their mainstay, unbelievable. And uh, talk about health benefits as well as just fantastic taste. And uh, it's uh, it's a real it's a really special uh, group of people behind it. So keep that in mind. And I wanted to throw that in there because after this uh, recording and after this show's done tonight, I will be using it as I prepare a meal for tonight for Mrs. Cobra and myself. With that said, let's talk about my our guests tonight. John Lilly, director of the People's Mosquito. Bill Ramsey, wing commander, retired RAF, director of operations, and the director of engineering and airframe compliance. Our own beloved, Ross Sharp, who is practically a fixture here on the show anyways. Ross, we were talking with you last as we were coming out, uh, or rather going into the break. Coming out, I want to start with you. Give me and, uh, and everyone here a thumbnail sketch of the absolute incredible database and information that has been compiled of the People's Mosquito. There is an unbelievable series of fantastic events, in my opinion, that have come together uh, on this. And then when we get done with that, I have a couple questions from people over the last few months that have written me directly, Commander Cobra, uh, at my email, to, uh, to about this Mosquito Project. Go ahead, Ross. Okay, well, I have to say straight off the bat that uh, this project would not uh, be as successful as it's proving to be if it wasn't for the actions of one Mr. John Lilly Esquire, star of stage, screen, and this radio, um, in rescuing uh, at the point of a wreckers ball what turned out to be a treasure trove of 22,300 technical drawings uh, on microfiche that were being uh, scrapped, or the building they were in was being scrapped, um, uh, in North Wales. They made a mad dash cross-country and picked these drawings up in black garbage sacks, because that's all that they had to hand at the time, and brought them back to the HQ... Uh, whereupon they were piled on uh, uh, one of our members' kitchen table uh, in a pile eight feet long and approximately seven inches high. And people say, what are we going to do? Well, the answer is that John and co. arranged for them to be digitized and saved for posterity. We still have the originals, of course. And then some lunatic had to go through these one by one and <laughs> assess them. <laughs> and, and categorize them as whether they're okay. And uh, it took me about four months working up to 12 hours a day. Um, but it was good fun and well worth it. And then handed all this marvelous information over to our, um, how can I say, wizard engineers, our retained builders, Retrotech Limited, uh, under the uh, able guidance uh, uh, of Guy and Janice Black, um, who were able to take this and start producing work packs. And as we drag the money in, and every dollar we get and every pound we get goes towards building uh, another component for for the fuselage uh, molds 
or, or some now some internals that we're starting to work on, like instrument packs and so on and so forth. Um, so it's just fabulous. It really is. It's it's driven by the people. That's why it's the people's mosquito. So so that's the, the, the literally the thing that initiated it. It's like the initiator in a nuclear device. It went off bang after that point. Sure it did. And I, phenomenal. Uh, again, to me, it's another incredible um, uh, backstory to you're talking about blueprints that were put on microfiche, fairly old technology, um, and then from there being digitized and brought up to the current uh, you know, way that we do business in the age that we do that. And I think it's incredible when we talk about, as we were talking about earlier with Prince Philip and his dedication to what we call STEM here in the United, in the United States or the colonies. Um, that we 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 need to have material available. I can only imagine someone that's uh, just kind of banging around the internet will stumble across the site or stumble upon uh, a collection of, of these uh, paperwork or working on something and find some original documents from the 1940s showing the uh, the layout and the uh, the design engineering. Just recently, because uh, I, I serve as the handmaiden to uh, to Ross when it comes to giving the lectures and briefings. And I tell you now, for all members of TPM, he continues to uh, absolutely bring the house down. He did one uh, recently to an organization in the uh, greater Boston area uh, through a, a mutual friend of ours. And it was just absolutely warmly received. It just rave reviews by a group of what I consider very, very tough engineers that were just absolutely blown away by Ross's capabilities on that. But I've given a couple briefings on the Mosquito to a number of Civil Air Patrol cadets because I think that's one of the most important missions that you can do is to is to, is to spark that interest. And it doesn't have to have everyone end up in a cockpit flying the airplane, but Dawn, I would say that that's probably, you know, the, the reason that you want to. But there is so much to be caught up in um, what this airplane is doing, what the People's Mosquito Project is doing. And I, I'm just – I'm ecstatically happy that that we could get that bill let me ask you a quick question here um that will on my long list there's a designation well i guess this is open to anybody the designation dh98 is seen on the website as well as r249 what do those two designations mean in regards to the project airplane okay uh what d havland dh the havland i guess model 98 uh Correct. it's just the type uh the type the type name yeah mosquito so i guess it's like a you know, uh f-16 and viper so right so similar to that uh rl249 is uh the military serial number for one specific airplane uh, rl249 uh as you know was a, a, a post-war night fighter um uh, in the same way that X-ray Hotel 558 was the Vulcan, uh, the Vulcan which I flew. So, so it's like it's like, the re it's like a registration on your car. It's, and that's important, uh, Ross, because that's the uh, the basis of how you work the certification to get this airplane uh, back uh, and certified when it's when it's completely rebuilt. Yeah, John will back me up on this. I'm sure um, we had a, a conference, a full-on conference. So John and I were expecting to just have a nice. Yeah. A discussion meeting, yeah. as John would tell you. And we found ourselves, when we reported to the Civil Aviation Authority headquarters at Beehive House in Gatwick Airport, uh, we were ushered into 
a very large conference room. And I looked at John, I thought, well, this is a bit large, you know, what are these people uh, who are we meeting? And before we knew it, we find ourselves facing the chairman of the, the um, uh, airspace, uh, sorry, the, the uh, SRG as it was then, it's now the SARG, um, and Safety Regulation Group of the CAA, the chairman. There was the head of the legal branch. There was the head of material sciences. There was a, uh, not the head of propulsion, but he was on, on leave. There was his deputy head of propulsion and others. It was full on, and we had to literally hold our own for a shade over two hours, I think it was, John. And That's in right. front of the chairman, there was a huge bound copy. It's about five inches thick of uh, CAP Civil Air Publication 553, which is the Bible for the um, uh, building and operation uh, of aircraft in the United Kingdom. And uh, the chairman got up and uh, towards the end of things, and he tapped the front of the book, and he said something to John and I, which was quite profound. He said, gentlemen, you will notice I didn't have to open that once. So we knew we were in at that point. So that was the start of the project and, and the big surge forward from then onwards. I tell you, I tell if you, you guys could uh, figure out a way to uh, to uh, uh, patent that or put it into a bottle, uh, there's thousands <laughs> of people that would love to have that uh, you know uh, that capability because it to me it, it it's un unheard of, but it just it it's in line with this project. It's in line with the people that are are, are leading the project and then contributing to it. Someone's going to say, "Go ahead." I was going to say the um, the formula. I guess if you, what I thought of was, I've got a great guy in Ross who knows his knows the regulations as they are today, but also understands the design and build of the aircraft from yesterday. Right. And with that, Ross, uh, with the help of Bill as well, let's bring Bill on this. Well, I, definitely. They've championed is to make this. The rebuild or the re we call it a remanufacture here, um, you know, to be as safe as possible. So that not only because, of course, safety is absolutely paramount to everybody's flight. Whenever you fly a glider to a helicopter to an airliner, you know, people people know something goes wrong. It goes wrong quickly and it's not a good end. So everybody's focused on that. And and but with that in mind, then is in preparation. So with Bill and Ross getting their heads together with their experience. You know the knowledge. You know we went in and we had a, we had a game plan to share with them. We just went through the game plan and said, "Take any questions." And like Ross said, we expected two people, and we were told we've only we can only give you thirty minutes, <laughs> yeah, two hours. You know, um, but that then instills confidence. When you've instilled confidence in your authorities, when you've got your business plan, because we need eight million pounds to do this. Right, roughly today, it might, it might grow to nine million because of inflation and other things. Time, you know, but it's a lot of money today. You know, absolutely a lot of money today. And um, and so once you've got that, and you go out to the put when you're going out and saying, "Please give me your pound or your dollar," you know, one of the things you have to do is give them confidence. You know what you're talking about, but also in this case, the authorities are confident in you. And not Absolutely. only, yeah, you know, uh, you know and, and not only that, anybody that flies in this aircraft, you know, we want it, we want it to be there to be enjoyed and enjoyed for many years to come. And we're planning to have a good, a really good, you know, 
two, three decades um, airframe life. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When when this baby goes to the museum, she will have a a, a long and distinguished flight career. That's that's the uh, the toast uh, on, yeah. on on my lips on every drink. Switch. What do you think of all this? You coming from the silent service, you've been uh, thrown into the uh, into the flying arts with me quite a bit. What do you think? Well, of course, there's jokes about submarines with uh, screen doors, and uh, <laughs> I don't know about wooden submarines, but uh, that probably would not work. But I but I wonder, you know, you've uh, uh, you, you're doing this from uh, you know from scratch, and there are so many things that don't exist. Uh, to make yeah. this work. Uh, can you give us an example of some of the obstacles that you came up against and how you solved them to make this project work? Yeah, the first one is the fuselage. And uh, for any, anyone listeners that know Mosquito, the wooden fuselage is made on a mold. So you have this mold. You have two halves, actually. You make two halves. So, guys, I, I guess it's Revel in your country, but you made model kits as kids. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So if, you, if you're make, making model kits, and everybody at home, you've got this in your head now, you would glue two halves of a fuselage together to make the fuselage for your model airplane. You know, so in real life, that's a mosquito. You, need, you have two halves and glue them together. To get the two halves, though, you need a mold. Yeah, you need molds to the profile of the fuselage from the, where the tail section starts to the nose. Yeah, and then a big gap for the wings. And the molds, the key, the New Zealanders have got, there are three flying mosquitoes restored in the world. They spent about 10, 12 years bringing back molds. And we could have had the, the, the fuselage made over there. But with this drawings, this bonanza of getting all these drawings together, we found what's called the lofting drawings, which is a, a naval term, actually, you know, uh, basically. And, and it's also got bulkheads, which is another naval term, and things like this. But these these lofting drawings enable uh, Retrotech, our appointed engineers, as Ross mentioned, and aircraft remanufacturers, who, by the way, hold all the UK civil aviation manufacturing and engineering licenses. So that's important for the confidence. And I've made some brilliant aeroplanes. But from that, we were able to make the first moulds, and we are currently finishing them off for this aircraft in 73 years. So as you said, the reference there, going back when this aircraft goes into a museum, with the moulds there, Commander, you can make another one. Because wow. the secret to the ingredient to Mosquito is the fuselage moulds. Because once you've got them, you can reproduce, 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 and you know, and, and you're off. And we've also got the wi the wing jigs, the tail jigs, the Bombay doors. We've got all the tooling. It, it's all there. And now we've got the drawings which we've digitised. And so that was the first obstacle. And we did it because the, the secret was the drawings. And then using CAD as a modern thing, we're using CAD to check the profiles. And we're also going to use a thing called a ferro arm, which Ross might tell you what it is in a minute, which basically does a laser scan as well. So we're using new technology to ensure the engineering is spot on. Another example, you're right, the parts are not off the shelf from 1940. They're just not around. There are some things you can still get. For enough, uh, tires for the aircraft are still available, but certainly some of the more uh, the, the mosquito have metal fittings as well. The the rudder pedals are magnesium, so we're also getting around that because we've got the drawing, 
and we've got a volunteer who does uh, is doing all CAD work to make the castings for these things. So again, but we're also searching the world for actually you know new old stock material or things that we can refurbish. And yeah, it's it's limited, uh, but again, because you have drawings or you can go to a museum and scan something now with modern technology, there is an answer around every problem. Excellent. There you go. And you say you're from, you're from, you're Submariner, I take it, yes? Yes, yes. Yeah, well, the, the mosquito also came in what we call, the, the, there was various marks, various types of the aircraft. A famous one was what's called the Mark 18 mosquito, but it was also given the nickname of Tetsi, after a very nasty fly. Yes. Fly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, the Tetsi carried a six-pound, uh, 57-millimeter anti-tank gun. And um, it uh, had the ability... It, its role was anti-U-boat and anti-shipping. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. And there is... Switch, we switch still, is always exciting. Well, yeah, I'm guys. sorry about this switch. I'm sorry about this switch. But, well, well, I was uh, one of the good guys, so I'm not worried about that, as long as you're okay, the Okay, well, there you go. But uh, the weapon was designed to... And we still have a veteran today, uh, uh, Flight Lieutenant Des Curtis, DFC. Still alive, he's 98. And he flew as a navigator over the Bear Biscay, and um, we've got a YouTube channel, and we did a three-hour kind of presentation on our YouTube channel, People Mosquito. Watch that, folks. There's a bit with Des Curtis in it, and he tells us how they used to fly basically at 60 feet across the Bear Biscay and using, funnily enough, broken code from... um, uh, the Enigma machines, they kind of knew when the, and there was a channel where the U-boats needed to surface. Um, but they were going at 60 feet. They would be flagships protecting the U-boat. They would pop up to a couple of hundred feet and then do a shallow dive and let rip with uh, this uh, 57 mil, which had 22 rounds that could fire one a second. And then they were banking away because uh, they were meeting 20 mil, 30 mil flak Commander, which I, I guess you would appreciate, is not nice stuff coming at you. No, it's not. But I want to drag uh, Bill in on this <laughs> because you brought up the YouTube channel, and I'm glad that you said it because it's on my checklist. Um, the People's cool. Mosquito has a YouTube channel, great programs. We also have a number of seminars when we get together um, that, that present a lot of incredible uh, uh, first-hand accounts as well as updates of what's going on with the program. It's a really uh, phenomenal way to participate. Uh, Bill, with your uh, extensive tactical aircraft experience, um, are you in the same company with me in the uh, absolute adoration of the fact that uh, these airplanes could take a lot of punishment, stay together, and were easily, in the relative terms, repaired, put back into service very, very quickly? Uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I was just going to say the switch is a, is a, a piece of solidarity that my last airplane, the Vulcan, had two periscopes. <laughs> so, uh, so we have something in common. Uh, yeah, you're right, I'm, and I'm sure you'll have seen the uh, battle damage, you know, particularly to uh, rudders and tailplanes on uh, mosquitoes. Yeah, like many other airplanes, with, you know, airplanes which came back with massive, massive holes in a in a you know, a, a primary con- a primary uh, control structure. So yeah, the um, and you're right, and you know the machine. But you know, I go back to you. I mean, the idea was that I think and Russell put me right if I'm wrong. I think the airplane wasn't really expected to serve for more than about six weeks, Russ. 
Uh, something of, of that order. Uh, there was also a, a great problem that it was predicted by the experts, inverted commas, that it would catch fire easily, which turned out not to be the case. Yeah, so yes, it was, but yes, I mean, light materials, skilled craftsmen who could mend pianos and cabinets and stuff for lords and ladies. Uh, yeah, I don't like, you know, uh, mending the hole made by an 88 millimeter cannon, I guess, was, uh, uh, you know, child's play for them. Yeah, but well, joints were butt joints were the actual order of the day, and when you wanted to convert a mosquito, all you did, say for example, from a bomber, uh, in one case to a high altitude fighter, you took out your trusty saw and you sawed the nose off at the appropriate point and grafted a new one on. Uh, it was that convertible. Well, Ross, you bring up one other thing that's on my list to, to bring up, and it's incredibly strong airplane. Um, took advantage of some uh, great properties of some very uh, special wood uh, that uh, produced a great uh, weight to strength to weight ratio there. But the wing box design that de Havilland had come up with um, is almost to me as uh, in critical or important as the fuselage, the, the capsulated fuselage being brought together. I mean, it, to me, it's just tremendous. What I've flown a couple airplanes that have that, that emulate that same kind of characteristic that it puts all the uh, the shared uh, demands of you know high g flight high speed flight uh and and does it with a, a lot of elegance yeah there are some interesting um, design features um, on the aircraft for example uh, the wing itself is is very strong as you mentioned it's got a double skin of plywood on on the top surface separated by spacers it's a single skin on the bottom. Um, the whole wing itself is carried on a, um, a, a pickup structure that's made of walnut wood, uh, which is incredibly strong. And it's held onto the fuselage by just four large bolts. And the fuselage itself um, is the wooden monocoque structure, a sandwich with balsa between uh, birch or, or spruce three-ply, and then reinforced at various places by by uh, spruce strengthening uh, parts, and also uh, there are seven bulkheads involved laterally down the length of the fuselage. And also, as the fuselage diameter reduces, then the uh, plywood skins of the fuselage uh, uh, cease to be laid immediately fore and aft, and start to be laid. Uh, in a spiral form at 45 degrees, so you're going to 90 degree bend uh, um, top and bottom sandwich, but they're at 45 degrees and being able to take a, a greater load of the of the tail group. Um, brilliant piece of design. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, uh, Sir Jeffrey Hamlin and his design team took the parts that they think they didn't need, such as the gun turrets, the extra crew, uh, the extra fuel to carry the extra crew and the gun turrets, etc., and just reduced it. So you had an aircraft that had um, that was just 40% more wetted area, as they call that's the outside area exposed to the airstream. 40% more wetted area than a Spitfire, with twice the engine power. Right. They they, they definitely embodied what is now very popular when we talk about agility and some of the other uh, 
engineering and uh, business practices, they had their goal defined and worked backwards from that uh, to build the design to get to it. I mean, and it, it, it wasn't evolutionary. It was a revolutionary leap that they took there. No doubt about it. Mm. Now, John, uh, why I have you here, uh, it wouldn't be replete if we did not have a, a little discussion about you flying the Vulcan. Um, Joan. Uh, John, John, excuse me, Bill. Uh, um, yes. Oh, sorry about the Vulcan. Uh, sorry about that. Um, you, uh, you did a masterful job with it. Another great uh, uh, presence on YouTube for anybody that wants to see some incredible uh, uh, information and scenes about uh, flying it behind the scenes. Uh, give us a little talk about that because I, uh, I, I love the airplane. Another one that I was greatly taken with in my uh, early on in my flying career. And I do want to make quick note that I believe that the uh, the the chapel window, if I saw the last update, uh, has been uh, completed. Is that correct or nearly complete? Uh, yeah. So actually, your second question, you're, you're talking about the stained glass window at the. It's the village church at, at, uh, in the village of Scampton, right. uh, which is uh, just next to the, the RF station. Uh, they have raised uh, a, lot, a lot of money to replace the, ma the main windows by the altar uh, with uh, a pair of uh, stained glass windows to commemorate uh, the people who served uh, at RF Scampton, which is a station which is going to cease operations in about a year's time. Uh, and on those windows, they put uh, some of the airplanes that the station's famous for. So the Lancaster, everybody remembers from 617 Squadron and the Dambusters. Uh, the Vulcan, which is actually Vulcan X-Ray Hotel 558 because Vulcans were stationed there for many, many years. Uh, and uh, the Red Arrows, who are the, the, the current people who are there. So, uh, yeah, so that, that window is, is very nearly finished and all things... Being equal, they're hoping to have them put into the church uh, by uh, late summer, I think, this year. Uh, as for the Vulcan, I mean, it's interesting. We, yeah, we're talking about the revolutionary advance in aircraft that um, the Mosquito represented. Post-war, you could argue the Vulcan was pretty similar, um, bearing in mind it's a, an Avro aeroplane, so from a different but equally famous stable, Avro manufactured uh the Avro uh, Lancaster, which again, contemporary of the Mosquito. Uh, but only 11 years after the uh, Lancaster first flew, the first Vulcan flew. Uh, it was a four jet, not four piston. It could fly twice as high, uh, twice as fast, twice as far as the Lancaster could. It was a delta wing aircraft for those who don't know it. So an unusual shape uh, for the time. Uh, and specifically designed to carry uh, the, the British uh, nuclear weapon of the time, which, uh, like many others then, was a very, very large weapon. Uh, is that what you want to know about the, the Vulcan or just all flying it? Oh, no, I, I, I think a lot of folks uh, don't know uh, about it. And, of course, your time uh, flying it is, uh, is well documented. And we're coming up against the, uh, the end of this, our next break. So... Um, I did want to make sure that I got mentioned. I think the stained glass window project is uh, was a really uh, touching and uh, a really nice thing that uh, got uh, done. And I was actually able to contact the uh, the church directly, uh, and, uh, and and had some nice uh, conversations with them uh, via email. 
So it's a great project, and I think it's going to be a fitting way. Yes, go ahead. It's the time to just tell you real quickly, in the churchyard there, there are something like uh, 50-odd, more than that, actually, uh, RF people who uh, gave their lives with that. But, but also, there are four four German crews from, I think it was a Junkers 188 intruder, Ross? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which had a crew of three. But one of the ground crew asked if he could go along for the trip to see what happened. And uh, he was so he was shot down with the crew and died along with the rest of them, which is, is, I find really touching. And, and the fact that they're all uh, were rendered with honors into the same graveyard, uh, it... it it, it bespokes a lot of different aspects of what goes on uh, in warfare in, uh, in in the human struggle. So I, I think it's a it's a it is a fitting thing to uh, to make point of. So as we come up against this break, um, two things I wanted to bring up. But first, my eternal thanks to both of you for uh, staying up late and uh, talking to us from the UK and giving us the update and urging people to join the People's Mosquito. That's the People's Mosquito just put it into any search engine, you'll arrive and, uh, and join that. Second point that I wanted to bring up, um, by the time this shows, this airs, Mac, JJ, Switch, and our guest producer tonight, Skywatcher, will all be members of the People's Mosquito. I've made a, a commitment to uh, the organization that I each month uh, I'm trying to put up uh, a membership as a way to uh, boost uh, membership in numbers. And uh, that's my small contribution to the effort this year. To, uh, to get us uh, oh, another step closer. And one last point. Uh, to me, nothing embodies this better, especially when you get into the paranormal aspect that uh, Mac uh, and w- what we bring on this show. The Shepherd by Mr. Forsyth uh, is one of the greatest uh, short books you can read about military flying aviation, and it has a great ending. Obviously, most people who have followed me in the past know that it is my Christmas Eve tradition, because the story takes place on Christmas Eve, um, uh, to uh, to listen to a recording of that done by the BBC. There's a, there's a couple also great episodes of it out there by Canadian Broadcasting and a uh, book on uh, tape CD uh, rendition of it as well. Fantastic. Uh, Mr. Forsythe is a supporter of TPM. And uh, John uh, and, and Bill, I thank you very, very much for joining us tonight. And, thank you. Uh, and, le- and I thank you for your leadership and your continued uh, commitment to uh, to keeping the uh, the mad Englishman on target for getting the mosquito back into there. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Cobra. Thanks, Switch. Uh, thank you. Yeah. It, was, it was great sharing time with the mad Englishman. And oh, uh, for, a pleasure. And for you gentlemen to know, uh, on on uh, UK Paranormal Switch uh, has a show that uh, makes the uh, makes the airways there. So keep an ear out for that as well. The high strangeness Fantastic. factor. Okay. Well, we appreciate the invite. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Just gentlemen, you. as always. Okay, folks, we'll run to a break. Macmillan's Military X Files. It is a uh, small show. Tonight with Switch and myself in a two-ship formation trying to drive this through. I think we're keeping Ross on, and we're going to be coming back right after this break for a very special Fringe Report with Switch. Please stand by. Do you know where the world's most secret bases are located? Do you know what spooky action at a distance means? Is there a conspiracy by aliens to prevent us from conquering space? And where is the best place in the United States to see a real UFO? 
Find the answers to all these questions and more in Mac Maloney's new book, Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe. Visit places you never knew existed. The Hampton Tunnels of Tokyo, the UFO Trail in South America, Ong's Hat, and the very mysterious M Triangle. Mac Maloney Haunted Universe contains hundreds of reports on ghosts, haunted planes and ships, weird celebrity deaths, mysterious sounds, and a breakdown of every monster in America, state by state. You've heard him talk about it on the radio. Now get all of Mac's paranormal research in one large volume. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe, with a forward by the very famous Juan Juan. On sale now in your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Do you know where the world's most secret bases are located? Do you know what spooky action at a distance means? Is there a conspiracy by aliens to prevent us from conquering space? And where is the best place in the United States to see a real UFO? Find the answers to all these questions and more in Mac Maloney's new book, Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe. Visit places you never knew existed. The Hampton Tunnels of Tokyo, the UFO Trail in South America, Ong's Hat, and the very mysterious M Triangle. Mac Maloney Haunted Universe contains hundreds of reports on ghosts, haunted planes and ships, weird celebrity deaths, mysterious sounds, and a breakdown of every monster in America, state by state. You've heard him talk about it on the radio. Now get all of Mac's paranormal research in one large volume. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe, with a forward by the very famous Juan Juan. On sale now in your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Hello, this is Commander Cobra of Task Force Griffin, KGR Radio, KGRRadio.com. And I need you to be a member like myself of the People's Mosquito and help rebuild and fly this great aircraft. I have three friends here today also who are going to ask you the same thing. Consider becoming a member of the People's Mosquito. Hello, I'm John Lilly. I'm the Managing Director of the People's Mosquito. And I'd like you to donate or support our flying program. Hi, I'm Ross Sharp. I'm the Director of Engineering of the People's Mosquito, and I'd like you to help us rebuild this magnificent aircraft. Hi, I'm Bill Ramsey. I'm the Operations Director and Tame Pilot of the People's Mosquito. I need you to join us and become my wingman. Join all of us and be a supporter of the People's Mosquito program. Thanks. I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the, the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I had to drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit hfotusa.org. 
UFOs are found in Renaissance art, on ancient coins, and etched on cave walls. They are even reported in the Bible. But more surprising is when UFOs are seen the most in times of war. Through centuries, thousands of UFO sightings have been made by high-ranking officials, military pilots, and ordinary soldiers. Often, these fantastic appearances occur at the height of great battles. From World War I to D-Day to Korea, Vietnam, and beyond, military investigators are baffled. Why do UFO sightings spike so drastically during wartime? Could it be mistaken aircraft? Or is someone or something looking in on us? In UFOs in wartime, what they didn't want you to know, Mac Maloney chronicles centuries of these incredible sightings and tries to solve the puzzle of why so many UFOs are seen while humanity is at war. Read about the scare ships, the ghost planes, and the ghost rockets, alien giants in the jungles of Vietnam, UFOs controlling our ICBM bases, dogfights with flying saucers during the Gulf War, and more. 300 pages of unbelievable stories, along with many startling photographs. That's UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know, by Mac Maloney. On sale at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. X-Files, a very special rendition of the show tonight. Commander Cobra here uh, taking the helm as JJ and Mac and the rest of the gang are off on a special secret mission. Not a lot of details. It is Switch and I in the two-ship formation driving uh, to success and hopefully a successful mission, which Mac told us earlier in our specially sealed orders to uh, complete the show and try not to break anything expensive. Switch, what do you think? Uh, are we uh, fulfilling our uh, mission obligations here? I think so, but I wonder if they're actually off on some kind of a junket that the uh, Mac Maloney's Military X-Files is paying for. Tomato, <clears throat> tomato, okay? Composite, <laughs> composite. And I say that because the other person that is with us tonight, uh, <laughs> uh, who's with us, uh, who can explain the difference between mission, special secret mission, and junket, and do it with such eloquence is Mr. Ross Sharp. <clears throat> Ross, how are you? I am delighted to be with you and Switch and uh, the incredible producer Bill over there. Um, uh, and I want to know what's going on in uh, mil uh, with regard to a certain Mr. Maloney and JJ disappearing off into the weeds, so to speak. But I'm wondering well, if this is some kind of reaction switch, because <clears throat> switch will probably give a good reaction because uh, I have been gone and I'm gone a couple times uh, out of the, of the month on uh, required uh, secret missions for my other job, the uh, the day job, as we'd like to say. Um, one one has had a couple occasions where he's uh, disappeared. What do you think, switch? Is this just some kind of a payback? Well, well, maybe they're they're kind of jealous. You get to go off on secret mission missions, so they want to have a secret mission also. Right. Well, the other part is is that there seems to be a, sometimes a certain um, um, sign or display of affection when I'm gone uh, by uh, people that come on and want to know where I am or emails that are sent to Mac. So please flood us with Mac. Uh, JJ, never do this again. Uh, <laughs> Cobra drove this thing practically into the waves, something like that. 
and we'll move forward. Well, we're very lucky to have a fringe report tonight, uh, and and Switch does an incredible amount of uh, investigative work, research work. He's probably one of the, the smartest guys that I know uh, on doing the research and doing the hard work on that. What do you have for us tonight, Switch? Well, this is a uh, this took place. Uh, we don't have a lot of details, specific details like names and so forth, but. Uh, the Daily Mail came out with this uh, this report, <clears throat> and what it has to do with, we'll get a little more into detail, but uh, uh, the it was an RAF pilot. This is toward the end of World War II. He encountered kind of a classic UFO. Now, we don't have a lot of description of it, but it's a, like a large metallic object, very classic. And what the way this came forth was there's a, a scientist, and we don't have his name. He claimed that his grandfather was one of Churchill's bodyguards at the time when this incident took place. And uh, this comes from uh, declassified Ministry of Defense UFO files. And they were made available online by the National Archives. Uh, now, the, the witness to this, the experiencer, is not named in the file. But this, like I say, this took place uh, toward the end of World War II. It was an RAF reconnaissance plane returning from a mission, and it was either France or Germany. So, again, we don't have all the specifics that we would love to have, but uh, this, the, we are getting this out of the files. And uh, uh, the information surfaced when the, the grandson from Leicester wrote the government because uh, he had heard about this from his grandfather and he wanted to see if he could get any more specific information because uh, this, the, the, uh, his grandfather was supposed to have been present uh, when Eisenhower and Churchill actually discussed this incident. And uh, <clears throat> uh, so, and we'll, we'll get a little more specific as to what happened, but, but Eisenhower wanted to, to classify it. He said it would create panic uh, in the general population and destroy one's belief in the church. So what had, what had happened was uh, the pilot was near the English coastline when he was inter intercepted by a strange metallic object. Uh, now, there may be drawings in the archives or whatever, but we, we don't have them. Now, this thing... Uh, now again, this is this is uh, sometime in the early 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 mid 40s, uh, several years before Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting, before flying saucers were a topic in the uh, in the newspapers. Uh, the Foo Fighters. I don't know how how much people knew about the so-called Foo Fighters at the time. These strange objects that seemed to be pacing uh, well, that planes. Was, and, that was greatly classified, right, Ross? I mean, the yes. Foo Fighters stuff was never brought out. No, it was not. Um, as a matter of fact, there were. It, it was mixed up. Uh, there was disinformation uh, at this point in time because um, it was put about that uh, the Germans were using a new type of anti-aircraft uh, scare tactic. They called them scarecrow shells. And they were supposed to project um, sort of an image on the retina of an exploding uh, British aircraft to scare the bomber stream. And in fact... These weren't German anti-aircraft shells projecting an image. They were actually Lancasters and Halifaxes blowing up. Mm. So the there was you know they were told that this uh, was possibly just another type of, of scare tactic being done by the Germans. But um, it's strange that Switch should mention it was a reconnaissance aircraft uh, in the Daily Mail report, Mail report, which I read by the way, Switch. Um, it shows an image of uh, a mosquito um, 
PR 16, and it's highly likely to have been a mosquito that was followed by this UFO. So um, th that's extremely interesting in its own right, as far as we're concerned. Right. And, uh, and of course, the Foo Fighters, when, they, when, when people started seeing them, everybody thought it was somebody else's aircraft or technology. And, of course, yes. it, it was something else altogether, whatever that was. Well, it appears uh, to be because no, one, no one's been able to make claim of them on either side. All right. Yeah. And, oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying that, um, yes, the Foo Fighters were regularly reported by uh, what we call main force aircraft, that is the Bomber Command uh, streams that were sent out almost nightly to attack uh, German targets in Europe. And the gunners uh, in the turrets of these Lancasters and uh, Halifaxes and Stirlings were regularly on a, on a very uh, high alert and they would report these lights which they were firmly convinced must be, you know, from uh, the Axis powers. And uh, when when this uh, uh, when, the, when the plane was uh, intercepted, this thing started pacing it. it. It followed its course. It matched its speed, and it did that for a time. And then all of a sudden, it accelerated, took off, and disappeared in the distance. So. Uh, Churchill's people and Eisenhower's people, they, of course, you know, it, it's, it's like it is now. They tried to come up with some kind of a, a plausible explanation to make this sensible. And uh, they, there was a, a high degree of concern because they, they couldn't. I mean, they came up with the possibility of a missile, but the missile would have had to be moving too slow to keep pace with the plane. And the, the change in speed and, and the way it, it accelerated and went off into the distance, nothing made any sense. So uh, it, it, they, they realized that whatever the heck this was, was well beyond the capabilities of the time. So uh, Churchill stated that this incident should be classified for 50 years that a, a future prime minister should review it. So let's let's uh, let's let another prime minister a half a century from now try and figure this out. Now the uh, the, the scientist, his grandfather, did not really that the first time he actually talked about this incident was to his uh, daughter when she was nine years old, and and he died in 1973. So uh, apparently, it's not really stated how the grandson. Uh, found out about the the specifics, but uh, uh, he the the grandfather would occasionally uh, hint that uh, about the uh, uh, he kind of hint about the incident without actually talking about it. That we might have uh, there might be flight technologies that are that are far superior to what may be possible, hinting that there's something else out there. Now uh, the uh, now switch. Let me let me grab yes. something real quick here. Yeah, sure. An, an interesting point that I wanted to bring up. In my mind, when I hear this, you're talking about uh, two men, uh, two people that are at the absolute pinnacle of trying to keep the world in uh, what I would consider the uh, the light or the wind column. Um, so there's a lot of uh, a substantial conflict that's going on here. Um, and things taking up their time. Um, Churchill, obviously, to me, one of the greatest prime ministers uh, of the UK, no doubt in my mind. And Eisenhower, which I consider a great military leader, and to me, a very, uh, um, very uh, good president as well, who has been rumored for years 
to have been involved in actually meeting extraterrestrials. Uh, he was responsible for uh, putting, really putting together the manned space program in the United States, getting that uh, really organized and, and brought together uh, to move forward. Uh, was there for the Sputnik launch. Um, obviously, we uh, I, I read the same article, and, and one of the things that's always attracted me to it is because uh, the uh, the mirror decided to use a, uh, a rendition of the uh, reconnaissance mosquito with a very classical UFO uh, depiction uh, behind it uh, on there. Do you think that this plus the war was a formative uh, kind of uh, event? that carries over later on to uh, Eisenhower when he had to make decisions. And I'm going to start with Ross before I come back to you, uh, Switch. Okay. Well, certainly this was an event that that had ramifications in that Churchill thought that it was so potentially devastating to public morale that these papers must be classified for a minimum of 50 years. Um, there are other... Um, strange phenomena that were reported by uh, Royal Air Force personnel uh, over the years. There have been uh, time compression or lapses. There have been definitely lights and, and identified flying objects. And it's interesting that now, for example, um, uh, crossing the pond to where we are, that um, the De Defence Department have actually now confirmed that leaked video of unidentified aerial phenomena is real. And they, there's, there are several uh, clips that are out there, a uh, number of reports. Um, they're saying that unauthorized and or unidentified aircraft, uh, quote, have entered various military-controlled ranges and designated airspace in recent years. That's going to the Navy. Uh, that statement was made in 2019. Um, and later, of course, there's been some releases of the target video off the West Coast. But even so, it, it's strange that there's, there appears to be a cascade of either wink and a nod releases or drip feeding stuff into the consciousness on both sides of the pond. As to whether we're being prepared for a very big announcement, I don't know. But it's interesting that the momentum seems to be building. I switch. What do you think? Because I agree with Ross to a great degree. Yes, and uh, but I, 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 as far as disclosure, I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm still skeptical. You know, they, uh, they, we, we get these, like you say, these little tidbits, and uh, that they actually get to a point where they say, well, yeah, you know what, uh, this is unidentified. We don't know what it is, and then that's it. Uh, there's there's all kinds of things out there. There's photographs, uh, legitimate photographs of the surface of Mars, not the CGI stuff, of, of stuff they've taken on various Mariner missions where you see things that look like trees and so forth. And there's no discussion about it. There's no – there's nothing official. So I, I, I don't know. I just think uh, – I don't know what – I, 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 it's almost like they think that if they just don't say too much about it, it'll go away or it, or it will maintain sort of an even uh, keel uh, of, of knowledge, of skepticism, of belief or whatever, and nothing will happen. But as, as far as, you know, the, these, these two men, I mean, if, if, this, if this incident is true, uh, it, it must have influenced their thinking. Uh, about for for later on and, and some of the decisions they made, I mean th this is that's pretty uh, astounding that uh, 
you know, they were seeing these craft, these uh, high-tech craft during World War II and with no explanation. And even uh, in, uh, Whitehall uh, officials investigated the, the claims and they, they tried to – supposedly they tried to see if there was any record of this uh, conversation between Churchill and Eisenhower and supposedly there wasn't. Uh, and, and interesting that an MOD official wrote in 1999 that prior to 1967, all UFO files were destroyed <laughs> because – in quote – there was insufficient public interest in the subject to merit their permanent <laughs> retention. <laughs> so, that, tells you, that tells you that there's a duplicate file someplace when there's insufficient public attention to something that uh, seems to be um, very popular in almost every part of the culture. And I do want to make a quick side note because we will get emails about it. Uh, Switch did manage even in this show to bring up Keel, and I'm going to simply ask, is even Keel related to John? Uh, and you don't actually have to answer uh, that on air, um, uh, <laughs> Ross. You wouldn't you wouldn't respect me if I didn't take that shot. I know we, it was a cheap one, though, Commander. I, it was only below the hard deck for a couple seconds. I, know, I had to yeah. take the shot. Yeah. I had to yeah. take the shot. Well, if that were true, all, all the any files uh, in the World War II era would have been destroyed if it was true, and uh, a civil servant. Uh, tried, he said, to find out if that alleged conversation uh, between Churchill and Eisenhower was recorded anywhere, and uh, uh, it, because the, uh, the the grandson said this was, you know, something important enough that should have been take, uh, taken to account, should have been uh, able to find somewhere. Uh, it, the, the Daily Mail uh, maintained that uh, it was known that Churchill was interested in UFOs, but they don't pr pursue it. Churchill died in 65, so certainly he knew about flying saucers and UFOs, but I don't know if they were saying that he was interested you know, around World War II or what particular decade that he, he had an interest in them. All right. I, and, I, hold on. I want to grab something here, Switch. Hold your, uh, your place because this is something I brought up with Ross in the past in the show. Ross, we have made uh, uh, often uh, very positive comments about this, and I – it's one of the things I, I I truly love about the UK and the and the, and the whole Isles. There just seems to be a much more uh, uh, a higher degree of comfortability, if that's actually a word. Maybe I created a word tonight with paranormal and English, Irish, uh, Celtic, uh, Anglo-Saxon culture. I don't know how else to describe it, and I don't think it's just. It, it also extends into Europe as well. Um, when, when I talk to the Norse uh, people of that background, there just seems to be an, a, a much more a kinship to having phenomenon, phenomena go on around you that doesn't uh, – it, it, it isn't upsetting or that, maybe that's not the right way to put it. It doesn't seem to uh, strike a really strange note. You just it's, – it's kind of how it goes. Uh, it's, it's part of the experience. It's part of the, of the ride here. That we're all going through. Your thoughts? Um, yeah, absolutely true. Um, it, it's it's part of that. Uh, uh, I put Anglo-Saxon slash Celtic uh, phenomenon, uh, the the joint culture on the Isles uh, of Britain, uh, that you don't have to to go very far. To find yourself enmeshed in that, right. I had a good, I had a good friend of mine who, believe it or not, was a chaplain in the United States Air Force. 
and he'd been in Japan, and he and I um, were chatting one day, and he said that <clears throat> they were he was bringing his family over to England, and then they were driving to various places and heading up towards a spot just outside of Edinburgh uh, to take part in a Burns clan gathering, because they uh -huh. were part of the, sure. the Burns clan. And I said, oh, that's fine. Well, you must come and, and stay with us, or at least call in and have a cup of tea um, at the uh, Shares Sharp, which at that stage was in the city of Derby, um, uh, headquartered for Rolls-Royce, of course. <laughs> and um, I, I said, what are your plans? He said, well, we're, I'm picking up this large um, uh, wagon, what we would call an estate uh, car, and a family of four, we're driving over to, to Bath and spending the night, and then we're driving north to get to Edinburgh, and uh, said we're taking in uh, Stonehenge and uh, Stratford-on-Avon, and then we'll call him for a cup of tea with you around about lunchtime, and then we'll continue on and drive to Edinburgh. And there was this silence on the end of the line from me. And he said, what, what's wrong? I said, well, back of the uh, envelope calculations, the distance from Bath to Edinburgh is around about 390 miles. Yeah. I said, um, you're going southwest to northeast. You're not going to make it. There, there aren't, at that stage anyway, uh, some of the, the motorway networks that we call them, you know, the, the highways to actually support that travel, and you're making stops in tourist spots. I said, um, we'll have a bedroom ready for you, or two bedrooms ready for you. Uh, so he said, no, we'll make it. He said, well, we'll get there just after lunch. So we prepared a casserole and put it in the oven, and there was this doorbell rang at about seven o'clock at night and there's the, this american family absolutely exhausted and bedraggled and i just pointed up the stairs the bathrooms there on the right uh, your, your rooms are uh, to the left of the, those two and they came down after about 10 minutes and john said to me how do you live it he said you he said it's like driving through treacle i said yeah that's right it's the accumulated um, history of thousands of years densely packed into a small island, right? And that'll ruin your travel plans. <laughs> you know, there's no way about it. And it is. I would recommend the English author, the late, great Sir Terry Pratchett, who I actually worked in the same building as at one stage. Didn't wow. know the man, but brilliant. And if you read his stories, the Discworld series of novels, Lords and ladies about the elves, and it's a juxtaposition of the one realm with the other, and so on and so forth. It's all interwoven and magic and everything else. And Discworld is a uh, flattened analog for for the world per se, and it's it's just amazing that the amount, the sheer density of uh, history and, and psychic phenomena and everything else that's packed into that, that island. I agree. Switch, you were going to say something and I cut you off. So well, that, that's all right. It was, it was just one other little little thing in the report uh, that they mentioned and that they, they said in these newly released files uh, that the intelligence chiefs in 1957 were supposed to have taken uh, 
UFOs very seriously. So, and again, it's, it's, it just it doesn't give you much more information, but that's not hard to imagine because in, in a, uh, you know, earlier on, I think during the 50s in general, there still may have been a, uh, uh, you know, with, with the military and so forth, they still may have been even a, a little bit, uh, you know, for the public's uh, uh view uh taking these things kind of seriously uh project blue book of course was up and running then uh but uh, uh it was just kind of later on when uh blue book kind of filtered out and they did had the uh the condon committee uh which was a kind of a farce and uh so uh you, you kind of wonder you know during this this whole period of time what was what's really been going on you know what? How do, how has has officialdom? How have the military and so forth really been looking at the UFO problem, and as opposed to you know what uh, what the skeptics and the uh, the naysayers have have promoted? So well, uh, I I think the thing that's interesting about this particular article, there's a lot of things that that trigger my uh, my imagination with this one, or trigger my my thoughts. First of all, it kind of came out of nowhere when this article made the uh, made its appearance. There wasn't anything going on around it. Um, the next thing that you you bring up is it it shows a lineage going all the way back and two very important uh, uh, players on the world stage. Um, did they or did they not? Usually, when there's something that's so absolutely not true. There's usually a, a very swift rebuttal. There's usually something very swift that comes out and says, you know, this didn't occur. You know, this is this didn't happen. That never occurred with this article, and it doesn't occur with a lot of the others that come up. And the other part is it just seems to punctuate all along the way that various world governments have, uh, and in this case, you know, you have the representation of two major uh, um, world governments, uh, on this particular article, this particular piece, mm. have been involved looking at this and been involved at uh, uh, controlling the information, controlling the flow, controlling the things that are going on. Um, I think you can give a justifiable case at any point away about uh, the uh, morale of people, the security of people, uh, the causing of panic, and, and, and all the things that are related on that. And here's the question I put to both of you. Do you think now in the age that we're the age of Mac Maloney's military, are we at a point where um, we have uh, we we just arrived at a point that the announcement of the disclosure wouldn't uh, be of a concern to the to uh, to world governments right now, or is it being used? It's a it's a kind of a binary question. Is it being used, the information being used, the possibility being used, just as another way to uh, to uh, kind of control the conversation? Rosh, you want to go first or do you want me to go first? <clears throat> okay. From a, a UK perspective, um, many people forget that um, we're smaller than the state of Wyoming. Uh, <laughs> It's a it's it's a small place, like seven hundred miles from top to bottom. You know, um, uh, about two hundred and fifty miles, three hundred miles wide at the base of the apex. Um, a lot of people, over sixty million people, packed in there. Uh, it's dense in uh, social psycho terms, as uh, you might say, Isaac Asimov would say. 
in the foundation series. Uh, series. Yep. Um, it, it's tight. The space is tight and it's hot. So you have to manage public perceptions carefully. Um, I think it's possible that, that given the fact that uh, the various social pressures being put on us you know, through, um, shall we say, medical developments or other things, um, and the breakup of the uh, uh, European Union, shall we say, it, it's possible that you could sneak out, shall we say, a major announcement, and it not make the same impact yeah. as it would have done only, say, 18 months ago? Yeah. That's a very good point. What do you think, Switch? What's your take? Well, yeah, I think nowadays it would almost be, in some in some quarters, it would be almost like uh, blasé. But uh, I've never, you know, I think it was, was it the Brookings report that came out years ago that said, uh, well, we need to uh, keep this quiet. I believe uh, it's Rand. I think it's Rand. Rand okay. Rand All right. Mm. And uh, see, I've, I've never never bought that. I think that if even if uh, decades ago we we said, "Hey, guess what? There's aliens and they're visiting us," uh, I think people would have a lot of people would have taken it in stride. Uh, some people, because of their religious convictions, would have would have not believed it or believed it in, and believed that it might be some kind of a demonic force. Uh, uh, people, uh, uh, some people would embrace it. I just don't think it would have ever created the panic that they thought it would. Uh, now, of course, if if these uh, aliens are up to no good, uh, the even if that's the case, the uh, the government is not going to admit that. Uh, oh, by the way, these guys are up to no good, and we have no control over it. That that part they would definitely keep secret. But uh, yeah, and especially today, I just. Uh, uh, you know, we've we've been saturated with uh, uh, pop culture, with uh, good aliens, bad aliens. Uh, yeah. uh, it's just, I, it just isn't that big of an issue. But uh, so, I, I don't know. I, I see. I don't really know exactly what we're dealing with. I mean, it's it's not. Uh, we're not strictly dealing with an ET presence. I I think there's well, there's there's much to you know John Keel, Jacques Vallée. Yeah. And let, me, let me let me. Throw a little more uh, chum into the water here. All right. To, uh, to just to keep this conversation with you two going. <laughs> we have seen quite a few things going on in in the recent reporting that have probably occurred over the last decade. If we look at now, we are going from the time of a report of um, quote unquote drones or some kind of UAP. Um, going over a series of U.S. Navy ships off the coast of San Clemente. We talked about it recently on uh, yeah. on a Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. Uh, the time of that coming out is, you know, someplace under 365 days and where we had other events that occurred uh, with the carrier battle groups uh, where the time for reporting to occurrence was a number of years. Um, I contend this that some of the materials, some of the uh, contacts that are happening is advanced technology that we are controlling. Um, when I say we, I'm going to use the royal we, uh, no pun intended, Ross. Um, yeah. we're, we're, I'm using the royal we that someone has it. I don't think if uh, the, uh, the the Chinese, the communist Chinese or the Russians were flying over our carrier our battle groups or flying over our uh, Navy ships, that it would go, it'd be reported, and the activity would have been the same way. There's there's something very suspect to me about saying, hey, we don't know what this is, it's flying over. To me, that appears to be assessment drills um, 
deep dives into how close you can get to the ship, what uh, what the ship is seeing, and it, it's organized to a great deal. Not everybody knows about it. That doesn't surprise me in the least. But I think it also is very convenient to take a playbook out of the 50s and 60s that the Air Force and the government used, the American Air Force and government used, and I'm pretty sure it applies on the U.K. side with the, the U.K. government and the RAF. Throw out a lot of UFO extraterrestrial stories mm. as part of the cover. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's obviously a, a classic public relations scam. It's almost like um, you know, uh, wag the dog. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it really is. You know, how how can we distract people? You know, how can we uh, massage the message to mix a metaphor? Lots of alliteration there, I know. Um, but very classic. Thank you so much. Uh, it really is a case in point that, that there is enough evidence out there. I'm sure we all agree to that. Um, it's a case of just assembling the facts and packaging it in such a way as you do not have unintended consequences in a social manner. Steve, what do you think? Well, if... Uh... Here's one thing that uh, I can speak for myself. Whatever, if I'm wrong about this disclosure, and they, they are forthcoming, I am still, <laughs> I'm the kind of guy that just uh, doesn't trust the government and a lot of the, the stuff that they put out. I, I, would be listen to, I would listen to this and I would think, you know what, you're not telling us the whole truth. There's an you're, angle. You're, you're, you're pursuing an angle, right? Yes, you're, we're, we're, it's important to uh, keep the masses uh, happy and manipulated and, uh, and, to, and to allude something I, I said earlier that if, if for any, you know, one of the reasons that they, I think that they haven't come forth with any of this is because whatever the hell is going on, they have absolutely no power or control over it. And that's what one, one thing a government will not tell you is that, yeah, we've got this really, really strange stuff that's been going on since uh, the beginning of mankind, but we have absolutely no control over it. We can't uh, manipulate it. We can't stop it. We can't, you know, whatever. So uh, uh, I guess that would be my uh, – I'd be wondering, you know, like you well, say, what's the angle? What's really going on? Switch, the government has said, though, a number of times now, um, and one of those recent uh, pieces that I sent around uh, Mac Maloney's Military X-Files staff uh, and, and, and hosts talks about a former uh, CIA uh, director who is, uh, in his description, is talking about you know uh, a pilot. He was a Navy admiral, and he's talking about a pilot that he knows that his aircraft uh, came to a stop at 40,000 feet. Uh, when he came and encountered uh, with something and he talked about this phenomenon. So there is a lot of uh, former uh, uh, heads of, of agencies and positions of power that are coming out and saying, we don't know what this is. Now, I don't buy that either any more than you do. Um, to me, there, there, there's an angle. It, as soon as you, at, with the track record that we have to date, I mean, start confessing to me, you're confessing stuff because there's something there's something else really big behind the curtain. <laughs> I, I I just I I I don't completely go along with that. But I think it's a difference in tone that's and uh, and what has been said that is capturing a lot of people's attention and in, in, in getting us kind of thinking about this. Ross, what do you think? Um, I'll go with you on that. It's 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 
again to use this this phrase it's massaging the message you're going to have to employ a load of spin doctors to get this right because the the um, there's a skepticism that Switch is, is brought up, and I don't blame him on that. Is a whole dollop of misinformation and uh, obfuscation and other large words around this. But once you actually dig down, once you've got this tame squirrel digging furiously, he will uncover that buried nut, right? And it's going to be out there. There's no doubt about it in one way or other. Switch, final thoughts here. Uh, final thoughts. Uh, I agree with Ross. Um, well, you can never go wrong with a statement like that. He's got the right accent for this. So that <laughs> always helps. So even if it's completely wrong, you feel good about the wrong message with well, a good Well, that was part accent. of my calculation. I said, I, I know if I agree with Ross, I'm home free. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know that the mail is going to be good when you agree with Ross. There's that's, no doubt about that. That's right. One You're last... taking me back to my BBC Wiltshire sound days here. Oh, it's quite funny. <laughs> Again, another facet of the Ross jewel has been, you know, has been uh, uncovered here with his BBC background. You know, masters uh, at, at presenting uh, the information. But let me throw one last uh, um, piece into this. And it goes back to what I was talking about, uh, what I'm going to affectionately refer to as the Isles, um, England, uh, Scotland, uh, Ireland, and the associated even smaller islands around it. Don't forget uh, Wales, my sister. And, well, and, and Wales, pardon me. I, I, I always, I, and I, I almost made a horrible <laughs> error by saying, well, that's part of England, but come on, oh, uh, Commander Cobra, <laughs> what is wrong with you? So that will generate mail. That will generate some interest. Um, here's my point especially when you do consider Wales. Um, we have, and Switch over the years has shared many, many interesting accounts and stories. You have a part of the globe that has had some of the most interesting intersection of cultures. Um, you had what has been attributed to, uh, to many historians, the... Uh, the saving of the Western civilization record because of the monks uh, in Ireland being able to uh, maintain the records that were uh, not destroyed. You have Romans, uh, Saxons, Norse uh, that have all intersected. The French from the uh, mainland uh, centuries later uh, on the Norman side. It's to me one of the most um, fantastic kind of outcomes when you look at all you know there's much tragedy there i mean there's much uh, human experience there and there seems to be a very strong spiritual connection to all of this to the uh, to, to the entire paranormal ross uh, your thought oh switch you first i i, I no, think no, sign it said river avon no, I was just thinking when you when you mentioned Wales, uh, Wales is an incredible hot spot for oh, uh, high yeah. strangeness activity. Uh, we've done some on on Mac's show. Uh, uh, the the Sutherland family in in northeast mm -hmm. Wales uh, had a whole series of bizarre events, and they were uh, some of them seemed to be physical, where they interacted with these entities. Others were more in a dream state. Uh, one of the one of the little the little boy. Uh, 
uh, I can't think of his name, but uh, after a couple of years, they were you know, talking to the, the other children, and he uh, he they put him under regressive hypnosis. They had kind of forgotten about him because he didn't say anything. Uh, that uh, he uh, the, the aliens he drew looked exactly, Jenny Randall's found out, like the Kelly Hopkinsville aliens. <laughs> so, and then there was the Dovid in the Southwest a few years before. It's just phenomenal, the, the activity that's going on there. Well, in 74, the Bowen Mountains incident in Marionethshire in Wales. Uh, that was incredible, the loud noises, bright lights, and even uh, um, suggestions that there was a crash, almost a la Roswell, you know. And so <laughs> some tabloids jokingly referred to it as the Rose Welsh incident. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Welsh incident. Yeah, um, yeah it, there's so much there in Wales. And I was saying this multi-layer things. I drove over the River Avon. Do you know what the word for a river is in Welsh? Afon. So I drove over the River River. The multi-layered <laughs> language. There's a place, I think, in Sussex. It's called Pen Ten Hill. Right? Pen and Ten are two ancient British and Saxon words for hill. So you've just gone by the hill, hill, hill. Yeah. So it's it's the way that the the cultures is so multi-layered and the experiences are too. And hopefully the release of any information that is needed will be dealt with sensitively. And I just hope it it, uh, it comes out forthcoming. But as I've said in the past, I don't need uh, external confirmation for what mm. I've concluded and what I believe. And that brings us really to the end of a most interesting Macaloni's Military X-Files show. Gentlemen, I thank you very much, uh, Mike guests uh, with me or my guest with us right now i should say is uh, ross sharp and everyone knows ross and is beloved on this program thank you ross for joining us tonight a and great pleasure as always we want to great to be great back coach. with you ross and, and john switch. i enjoy working with you and we want to throw out uh, the uh, salute to the earlier part of the show with john Lilly, director and uh, managing director i should say and uh, chairman of the people's mosquito and bill ramsey the director of operations uh it was great uh, first half of the show having them on always want to make sure we uh, round the horn here with important uh, people that we'd like an organization like to recognize and i really want to make a big effort on homes for our troops it is probably one of the best of the uh, uh veteran-based uh organizations that are out there building uh purposefully built homes for the veterans to meet their needs and challenges that they have uh, because of the result of their time and service in the military. It's a tremendous organization because when you donate to them, more than 80% is going into the actual building of the home for our troops and their families. So when they're handed the keys, they're handed free and clear that structure. And it's a structure that's purposely built that supports them. And it really is. Uh, to me, one of the greatest organizations out there. We've had them on the show. I should say Mac has had them on the show, and they're wonderful folks. And uh, I'm in touch with them quite a bit by email and trying to support their uh, their different programs, Homes for Our Troops. We have Sweetwater's Donuts, the official donut of the Macaloni Military X-Files, and uh, we are always cooking up something with them, no pun intended. 
And I am going to put one final throw to uh, Paran, Parnon, excuse me, Estates. That's P-A-R-N-O-N, Estates, E-S-T-A-T-E-S, dot com. Uh, they are hopefully going to become the official olive oil, Greek olive oil, true Greek olive oil of the Macmillan Militarics files. We'll see how that works out over the coming uh, weeks and months. Gentlemen, and uh, to all, it's been a, a tremendous evening, and I'm getting ready to give the signal to break the formation, and I can't wait for the big debrief with uh, Juan Juan and Mac, of course, mm. uh, when we all get together to hear how we did and see if we get a chance to uh, do another mission switch. Yes, and find out all about their junket. Well, our secret mission, uh, as we, most of us prefer to use, junket has such a... Uh, ugly connotation to it that we don't uh, want <laughs> so for everybody at macmillan's military x files and our fantastic uh, uh, array of personalities that were with us tonight i thank you very much for joining be safe be well and bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.